We'd also like to mention Spoo. Fuck, I hate this fucking name. I fuck it up every time. Damn, Spoo. I just heard he said Spoo. Spoo. <laughs> All right, here we go. Welcome to episode 20, everyone. We have another stellar show in store for everybody today. We're excited to bring you another of our new Modeler's Moment segments with one of our best friends, Zach Grizzle. You guys will want to stick around for that. And also an interview with one of the hobby's most recognizable names, Brett Green. My co-hosts here at the Posse are the best bunch of guys there is, and they're all here with me right now. Doug, tell us about that Bandai X-Wing you finished this week. I finished it. I actually was going to finish it last week, so but I decided to hold off and finish it on May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Blue Squadron, I made it Blue 3 because there are no reference photos for anything but, but Blue Leader from Rogue One, so it kind of gave me free reign to do what I wanted with it. Mixed my own colors using... To me, a flat white, I added a little bit of gray and a little bit of uh, deck tan to make it just a little off-white over a black base. And then uh, used Tamiya, let's see, flat blue with a little bit of real blue, AK real blue in it to lighten it up just a touch for the blue. And then played around with the yellows on it and other colors as well. Nice. It looks really, really good. If you guys uh, haven't seen it, check out our Plastic Posse Podcast Facebook page. TJ, how's that Border Models Crusader coming? Uh, she's wearing a coat of primer right now. I uh, just did, well, except for the turret. I need. I actually saw a primer in my airbrush. The, the compressor has turned off, though. I double-checked. So I might, I might do that before I go to bed tonight. And I'm also building my very first Tiger 1. It's in 48 <laughs> scale. Hold, hold on. You, TJ Holler, are building a Tiger tank. Yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> no, I do know what happened. Uh, Rick Lewis, whose name I'm sure most of the listeners have heard numerous times because he's one of uh, one of the people that supports us. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him on a uh, like a Zoom call because he is uh, involved in the Discord for Enrique's The Race for Terra YouTube channel. And it was his idea because he's getting back into scale modeling and he was soliciting ideas for easy to build stuff that is readily available. And I told him pretty much anything from Tamiya. So he picked the tiger one and 48 scale. He originally wanted everyone to do an early version, but I couldn't find the early version at a respectable price. So I bought the late version. And of course, after I bought a metal barrel and some Zimmerit, it was probably more than <laughs> the early version, but it's okay. But yeah, that's almost ready for primer. I have to build one of the other runs of track and then it's ready for paint. Well, for everybody out there, Rick and uh, was on a Zoom call, and TJ was a presenter on that call, and uh, he sent me some feedback, and I told him, man, I said, I don't know what you did to talk TJ into a Tiger tank, but 
That's impressive work, man. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe I'll just, I'll give it to you when I'm done. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I mean, if you're offering me one of your models, I'll give it a home for sure. So, all right, JB, tell us about the House of Mouse. How was your visit to Disney World? Oh, man, it was great. You know, it really, uh, it inspired me to build Star Wars stuff. Uh, you know, we I spent four days down there with my wife and neighbors and, it was an absolute blast, but going through, you know, Hollywood studios with, you know, the star Wars area, holy crap. Very, uh, I mean, it takes you back to childhood. I know Doug's been there and it's unbelievable. It was so much fun and again, inspiring. So I have a few star Wars kits, uh, you know, sitting right behind me. And I think that was the the bug that pushed me over the edge to, to start working on them. So I'm, I'm super excited. I wish I was still there. <laughs> we'll look, we'll definitely look. <laughs> forward to seeing some Star Wars builds from you, but what's on your bench right now? What, what, what have you been working on? I feel like I'm copying TJ in a sense where I have a border model kit and a Tamiya kit going. Um, but the border kit I'm working on is the T-34E. It's the up-armored version of the T-34. It's, it's really nice, except I don't know if they understand geometry at the, uh, at the designer <laughs> level. The plates on the turret, they just... I tend to think I'm a decent modeler, but man, they did not fit whatsoever. So I did some hacking and slashing and got it, you know, got it to where it needed to be. And then the 48 scale kit from to me, I'm working on is a T34 as well. And it's the T3485, the rather new kit. And I've replaced the wheels with T55 wheels. I know they're not 100% accurate, but they look close enough. And it will be a vehicle from the modern day um, Yemen conflict. I was just going to say, you know, it's pretty crazy to think that in Yemen today, there is T-3485s and M1 Abrams on the battlefield. So that's, it's pretty shocking. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. I've actually heard that about that T-34 kit. It's almost like Border Models is a pretty relatively new company. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody says the base tank is really, really good, Mm -hmm. but that spaced armor really has some challenges. I would definitely agree there. I, I, again, I finished the turret, so I'm, I'm happy to get that to primer and then I'll be working on the hull here maybe tonight or tomorrow, but yeah, it's uh, it's going well. Hopefully I'll have it finished for nationals. Shouldn't be a problem. That sounds great. Well, I've been working on my Tamiya SU 76 M. Um, that's been a lot of fun. That's a great kit and I'm taking a little bit different approach with it. And, uh, we'll talk about that at some point, but it's a great kit. Use some frial tracks on it, which I love. Just having a really good time with it, so enjoying that. Well, uh, guys, episode 20, we've got an amazing uh, uh, interview. We've actually got three interviews in this episode. So again, trying to bring all you Posse members out there, some great modeling content with each episode. We try to jam pack each episode with as much as we can get in it. But Brett Green is just a guy that has contributed so much to scale modeling. He was a blast to talk to. We also want to let everyone know that episode 20 of the Triple P is sponsored by Terry Wilkinson, Rick Lewis, Rick Cooper, Steve Schaefer, Jamie Anderson, Ethan Eidemill, Matthew Dyer, and David Wobbles. We really appreciate the support. These members of the Plastic Posse used our paypal.me link to help us out, and we really appreciate it. If you are enjoying our podcast and you would like to help the Posse, it's really easy. It sure is. Just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner of each website page, there is a little heart icon. You just click the little heart, 
and then you can donate any amount you'd like. Or if you don't want to donate, that's okay. You can still support us by taking a few moments. Leave us a positive review wherever you're getting your podcast from. A five-star review will really help the posse get out to more people who are interested in scale modeling podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, besides the Plastic Posse, there are other great scale modeling podcasts and social media content providers out there that we enjoy and recommend. You know, we'd like to start off with Dave, Julian, and Ian, and on the Bench Podcast, they're up to episode 111. The Plastic Model Mojo Boys, Mike and Dave, on episode 37. Just Making Conversation with James and Malcolm are talking about their comfort zones, which is cool. Scale Model Podcast is up to episode 70 with Stuart, Terry, and Jeff. And then the model geeks, Darren, Nemo, Whitey, and Frildo are on on episode 10. In addition to podcasts, we have other media, which is Sprue Pies with Frets with Stephen Lee, which is an awesome blog. Check it out. We also have Stefan Ezra Bridles, Warhammer adjacent blog. And then there's Jim Bates, a scale Canadian TV on YouTube and blog as well. Check them out. Plastic Posse is also sponsored by Goodman Models, makers of the Super Sanding Blocks. Hopefully all you guys out there have a set of these on your bench. I've been using mine for about a couple of days, and they're pretty awesome. You can order these great finishing tools over at www.goodmanmodels.com. And I would like to give a thank you to Scott for sending me some um, that I think Anthony sent over to us. I bought a kit from Scott uh, a week or so ago, and I got it in the mail earlier, I want to say Monday. And my Goodman Sanding Blocks are in there, and I've already put them to good use. The highest grit one will hog some material away. I used it to thin out the side skirts on my uh, Crusader, and it just, I mean, I went to town on that thing, and it just peeled it away. They're, they were awesome. Yeah, they're great. Anthony, uh, great products, and uh, we're trying to get them into everybody's hands. Or If you guys don't have a set of these, you really need them. They're very stable. They're very flat and true. They just, they'll make your bench a happier place. And now it's time for our next Modeler's Minute. This time, we'll be joined by... A very talented young man, Zach Grizzle. Okay, welcome back to another Plastic Posse interview. This evening, we are joined by Mr. Zach Grizzle. Zach, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Oh, we've never been better, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm good. I'm really good. Doing great, Zach. Welcome to the show. All right. To, to start us off, uh, go ahead and give us a little uh, brief introduction to, your, to yourself. All right. Well, uh, as TJ said, uh, my name is uh, Zach Grizzle. I am uh, the ripe old age of 20. Uh, I hail from uh, Tennessee, and I'm an armor builder. Cool. All right. So... Since you're twenty, which is is, is very young, uh, even to someone like me who is not that old, I'm not as old as these two other guys, but even to me, twenty is is still pretty damn young. How did you get into modeling? I don't know. I guess I would say it's kind of by accident, really. Uh, I was uh, snooping around in my parents' closet, as you do, at uh, you know twelve or so years old. I don't even know what I was looking for, but I saw uh, up on some shelf. Uh, a kit that my dad had worked on, and I had never really seen a model before, but I pulled it down again, you know, because I'm snooping in the closet. So obviously I'm going to pull something down that I don't know what it is. And uh, it's a uh, Ravel FU4 uh, or F4U or however it is, Corsair. I don't know planes, as you can probably tell already. 
and I, you know, open the box and I'm like, oh, that's cool. So then I take it to my dad and I'm like, what is this? And he explains what it is. And then uh, it just kind of goes from there. We went, got a model, I built it and I haven't stopped. So you said you're not really into planes and that you're primarily an armor builder. What is it about armor that that's just like screams like, oh, you know, I need to build this. You know, I really can't like say for sure. There's just like something about it that uh, it really speaks to me. I don't know if it's just the the way it's used or the the shapes of it. It's probably, you know, a combination of a whole bunch of different stuff. But it's just I find it more and, you know, this isn't like to trash on anybody who builds aircraft, but I find it more pleasing to look at as a model sometimes. There's a lot more interesting stuff, for the most part, that goes on on an armor model as opposed to a nice, clean, blue Corsair 1500 times. So a little bit more of like an industrial kind of lived-in look, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good way to put it. More function over form rather oh, yeah. than the other way around with yeah. a F-16 or something, yeah. So anyone that's been in our T-34, our Rifle Model T-34-85 group build, group on facebook has probably seen your absolutely phenomenal t34 and it's pretty obvious that like hyper detailing which is what i would consider that what you do that i mean that's your thing like what is it about about that like because i know me personally i'm i like do like to add some detail but a lot of times like just out of the box it's good enough for me because i just want to get on to the next thing but you've like taken it to the next level like what was the impetus to that? Man, I don't know. Um, but that I think I think one of my reasons that I I do enjoy that stuff more is because that's the that's the portion of model making that I really enjoy. I love building things as opposed to painting them. And you're you know you guys are the reason I've actually painted anything in the last like three years. Uh, so I have you to blame for that. I don't know. Uh, I, I guess it's just I I strive for accuracy as much as I can in my builds. That's what really interests me and part of that is also because in a way i feel like sometimes i use modeling as essentially an excuse to go do research on stuff (laughs) and 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 that's more of sort of where my passion is in in a way so the you know kind of like the super detailing which i wouldn't even really consider myself a super detailer really just because i I look at so many other people who do work that is mind-boggling with that kind of stuff but I, i try to but that leads more into the whole, you know, like making this as accurate as I possibly can. First point, you're 20 years old, so <laughs> stop it. <laughs> Second point, you are a super detailer. And uh, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of room to to grow um, in that area. I guess we would all say that about our own modeling, but uh, you're definitely a super detailer. Just to build on the question that TJ asked, Zach, do you get off more on the on the research or the actual execution after you've done the research or are they just sort of hand in hand? I would I would say they're they are hand in hand, but my level of execution isn't to what I would, you know, want it to be. But then again, let's be honest, when is any of our stuff ever to the level we want it to be? It's it's probably never going to happen for anybody. I would say they're pretty hand in hand. They're pretty tied together. I like to see when I'm when I do actually achieve that putting that rivet here and there as opposed to this other thing over here or uh like on my t34 like the uh the smoke bracket on the back for the smoke dischargers i have that uh there's the latch that attaches it to the hull so you've got like 
the bracket, which has sheet metal uh, straps, which then attach into a latch. And that has like a quick detach that the commander can pull to jettison the discharger when it's done. But I built that up in um, uh, Fusion 360. And when I actually, you know, finally got that printed, and it's a tiny little piece. I think it's like three millimeters tall at most by like 1.5 millimeters square. It's, it's a tiny little thing, which is pretty incredible. First of all, the whole printing thing. That is something I am really wanting to get into more. But unfortunately, my printer isn't, you know, it's not a super high quality, but it certainly does the job for me. When, when I, you know, printed those and then the seven times it took me to finally get one right and not just break off when I tried to, <laughs> to drill a <laughs> hole that didn't print properly that I couldn't get to go because it was like 0.3 millimeters. I looked at it and I was like, oh, wow, that's actually really cool that I was able to, you know, take that from some measurements that I found while scouring uh, Facebook, the T-34 interest group, which by the way, if anyone has any interest in T-34s, that is the group to be in. There is a level of knowledge in there that is just astounding. But I, you know, I took that from the measurements that I found of somebody's pictures of the piece that they had that they laid out on their floor and they measured. And then I converted that into the metric because I don't like working in, I, I hate working in Imperial units. I hate Imperial units, but that's a whole different thing. And then I, you know, I, I modeled that out, which took ages because I'm really no good at 3D modeling at all. I'm, I'm very much learning that. So it took me forever. Yeah. And then I, I finally, I saw the end product and then I was able to finally actually put that piece on the hole that I had drilled in the rear plate like a week and a half earlier. And that's where, you know, they sort of intersect as my ability to actually execute what I want and my ability to research what I want to then execute. They sort of, you know, meet. Okay. Biggest, uh, besides TJ, of course, who's your biggest uh, modeling inspirations? (laughs) Well, number one, I would have to say is uh, David Parker, because he is, in my mind, he is the super detailer and... At least in the modeling realm, he is the researcher. You know, like in the research realm, everyone knows Hillary Lewis Doyle. And his work is just, it's, it's amazing what the books, the Panzer Tracks books he has come out with. It's, it's incredibly amount of knowledge in there. But David Parker would be on, I guess, sort of the more build side, if you want to put it that way. More of the technical more side. The, yeah, the maybe. technical build, accuracy, that type of stuff side. But then on the other side... My influences would definitely be obviously Uncle Night Shift, who's who I mean, honestly at this point, who isn't who isn't influenced yeah. by uh, by Martin. And um also Mike Rinaldi. I really love his his style as opposed to that of like, you know, Mig or Adam Wilder or something like that. His is much more I guess kind of a way to put it would be it's more nitty gritty. You know, it's more down and dirty realistic as opposed to the other styles are generally a whole lot more I don't want to say artistic, but they're more stylized, and I'm not a huge fan of that. I mean, if you are, that's up to you, but it's not my thing. Well, those are some good influences for sure. And to get back to Uncle Night Shift, I think uh, when I was talking to him the other day, I think he actually even is uh, inspiring himself at this point. You know, he's actually (laughs) influencing his own builds. He's he's so good. Tell us about um, your kit selection. How do you decide what you build next? That's a hard question because I don't and I do. And and what I say by that is all right, I'll take I'll take two projects. One is the T thirty four eighty five. 
And the reason I selected that is because I was listening to you guys. I heard about the group build. I heard about what a nice kit it was. And it's the newest kit I've ever built, like the newest from production to me purchasing it. It's practically brand new, which is something I've never really done with. And first of all, well, that was cool. It's nice to have molds that aren't old. <laughs> so the, all the, you know, there's no seam lines really, at least nothing bad. So in that case, it was, it was, I was influenced by other outside forces, I guess you would say. And on the other side, it's I see something and I buy it, which is not always a good idea. <laughs> I have a uh, a Dragon SDK of Z7 late, which I bought at my local hobby town. And I just, you know, I looked at it, I was like, that's cool looking. I want to buy this. It's not a bad price. So I bought it. I get home, I open it up, and then I immediately, you know, start searching for reference pictures and trying to figure out all the info I can, and then realize it's it's a bad kit. <laughs> from, an, from, a, from an accuracy standpoint, not a good kit at all. Like, buildability, it's Dragon, so take that as you will. I personally don't mind Dragon, which is mostly because that's one of the first things I built as an armor kit, aside from, like, the Tamiya Panzer II, which everyone has to build. It's required at this point, I'm pretty sure. So... And then after that, you get into like aftermarket, which is a part that I really like. And that is, you know, obviously just a kid to kid basis. There's not really much choice in that sometimes, unfortunately, though I do have my favorite brands. So I would say picking kits, it's um, either I impulse buy something and then probably end up regretting that. Or I, uh, I see somebody else build something and go, all right, that's pretty cool. I'm going to buy that. Have you been to a model show before? I have not, unfortunately. I've tried to go five years in a row now, and none of them worked out. I can tell you about one in August in Las Vegas. <laughs> the big right. one in August. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to go that, but it's just not, not right. possible for me at the moment, which is very unfortunate because I'd love to go. Well, it'll be the first Nats for Scott and I, so. Nice. And me. And TJ, all three of us. Nice. Yes. Yeah. So we'll have JB to show us around. <laughs> We need to make one of those heartwarming videos and do a GoFundMe to get Zach to Nats. <laughs> have some have some dramatic music and a picture of Zach crying, you know? <laughs> oh, that's great. What are some goals that you have for your building, Zach? I mean, obviously, you've been focusing on the construction, and we've been uh, twisting your arm to get you to do more airbrush work. But what are some goals for your modeling kind of uh, near near-term and also long-term? So um, my near-term goals are definitely to improve my paint and my weathering. Because, you know, at the end of the day, for the most part, that's what you really see as a finished model is, ooh, fancy paint and cool weathering stuff. But, you know, that's not something I've really done a whole lot of in the past few years. So it's uh, it's pretty far behind with with the other skills that I have. And then long term is um, to, I mean, I don't know, I guess just to improve overall. That's kind of a, a basic answer, but that's pretty much just the truth. Uh, I would like to improve all as aspects of my build and my paint uh, and my research for that matter. I'd like to streamline my ability to find stuff. So if you're not a member of our T3485 group build, which you probably should be, um, where else can our listeners find your work, Zach. Um, okay, so I have both a Facebook page and and uh, an Instagram by the same name, which is uh, Grizz Modeling. So G R I Z Z Modeling. 
and I believe it's 1L. Can't remember which spelling I used if I wanted to go across the ocean or stay here. <laughs> yeah, it's 1L. <laughs> and so it should be the same on both Instagram and Facebook. For the most part, my Facebook has more content right now as I sort of let my uh, my Instagram page trail off as I focused on my Facebook. But I've, I've started to try and fix that and post things both places now. So I'm I'm more active on both both sides now. So Zach, last question. Uh, what would you like to say to all the other members of the posse out there? Well, first off, uh, Scott will give you free stuff if you ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. Uh, he sent me a, a big box of stuff today that I half paid for, I guess you could say. I'm trading him something. And also, yeah, I guess that's about it. I don't really have much else. Uh, go join the group builds. That's what I have to say. Go join the group builds uh, because they are fun. So if we were to have a airplane group build, Ooh. would you participate? That depends. It would have to be an airplane I would be really interested in, which there are some. There are some, but there are absolutely no promises for the quality of that build. <laughs> <laughs> Trust that's me. fine that's we're, yeah. we're leaning that way we've got a lot of listeners that are that are calling out for some air, aircraft stuff so well, that's unfortunate so kind of leaning that way perfect, for number number three well thanks a lot zach uh, you're a big part of our community love having you keep improving on that modeling you do fantastic work well thank you and uh, we're looking forward to uh the damage that you do with your airbrush and <laughs> and uh, seeing you grow there even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable but uh you're a great modeler and uh, keep doing what you're doing man all right well thank you guys all right well thank you zach all right talk to you later guys I have to say something about Zach. He makes it uh, obvious. He talks to us about his age. He's 20 years old. And I tell you what, that guy's got more facial hair than I could ever dream of. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's say something. I think we should have called him out on this when we talked to him. But he's man- mentioned in the past that we're the ones that got him to start painting. And if he's only been painting since our podcast starts started, that's what, nine months? If he's only been painting for nine months and he's doing that kind of work, uh, I, I call, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so Zach, stop it. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, we'd really like to thank Zach for stopping by and chatting with us. Uh, you can find his work over on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash Grizz modeling. That's two Z's. And you can also uh, find some of his great work in our plastic posse podcast, Rifield models, T 34, 85 group build. And in addition to Zach, there's a lot of other great models in there as well. All right. Well, let's uh, switch gears, guys. John, uh, you were you wanted to have a discussion about kit construction. Uh, yeah, thanks, Scott. One of the previous sessions that we discussed was Slammer Build, something that was super quick, get your mojo flowing, and you can just really complete it and keep moving. On the other side, there are some modelers, and, and I can be included in that with as well, is where you take construction to that next level. It's using every piece of aftermarket available. It's scratch building and it's bringing any type of multimedia to your build. And you almost don't want to paint it at the end of the day. So I'd like to just take a few moments and maybe we can go around the room and and talk about what you love about construction and kind of the value and 
and the joy it brings you. And, and I'll, I, I guess I can start in simply by saying construction within a build sometimes is very therapeutic. You know, it does get tiring sometimes with road wheels, but when you're going through a model and you're starting to put it together and you're starting, again, seeing it take shape, gets really rewarding. And then when you start using different types of multimedia, photo etch, resin, different colors of plastic, it starts to be a cornucopia of, of just different materials. And at the end of it, you almost don't want to paint it. I can harken back to my early days of modeling where some of these fully scratch build or heavily modified kits were just truly, truly inspiring. Uh, one example, you know, Scott and I have talked about in the past is a gentleman, Lee Lloyd. I believe he's out of the UK. I haven't seen his work for a while. His first work I remember is on AFE Modeler issue 15. He did the lower hull of a Tiger One tank. It, it is chock full of turn brass shells, resin, interior bits, different pieces of plastic, styrene, and just really creates an amazing piece of work without any paint on it. And in self, I, I consider that a model. You could put that on a display case and I would love looking at it. Um, he also is featured in uh, AFE Modeler 32 with a full resin uh, Churchill tank. But what I loved about that is I believe he turned and made the bolts on the vehicle himself. And Scott, you correct me if I'm wrong, you had mentioned the gentleman hadn't painted any of his stuff. Yeah, um, I remember following Lee years ago. Um, I first saw his stuff, I believe, on Missing Links. And uh, he was working on the Tiger, and I was following along as he was doing it. And I want to say um, he mentioned that he didn't want to paint it because he was colorblind and he just felt so passionate about his projects that if he couldn't really verify the color was right, he wasn't going to paint it. But for the rest of us that were watching him with the build, it was so beautiful to see the brass and the copper and the resin and all the different materials that he used. I think the model actually might have looked better, like like you were saying, without any paint on it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and you know, it's really interesting that we bring up this subject because today's world, I find that a lot of publications, and don't get me wrong, I love them, are mostly focused on the finishing aspect of modeling, which is great. Who who doesn't love a wonderfully painted model? I I love that artistic ex expression that modelers bring to the hobby. But one of the things that I also enjoy is is that scratch building nature or that masterclass, um, you know, modeling. And there's a few publications out there today I think that give you a taste of it. One of which uh, is you know scratch building masterclass by Inside the Armor Publications out of the UK, Chris Meddings. He's got three issues I believe now he's up to that really if you're looking for an itch to scratch for construction and get some inspiration, those are great publications. And then one that I constantly finding myself go to is uh, Adam Adam's Armor issue number one. That was the two-part series from AFE Modeler. I think they're out of production now, but another inspiring publication. And and before I hand it off to my co-host, I'll just, you know, pick one model that that I never wanted to paint, but I had to at the end of the day. But you know, one time building to me as older Tiger One, you know, putting the Cavalier Zimmerit on it, Shapeways photo etch parts, the full tracks, the photo etch fender plates, and then the metal barrel. At the end of the day, I, I still have it as a picture on my background on my computer. Even better, you know, I look at it more than my finished models because it just, it just is really cool. And I find myself only picking one of those projects a year because it's so intense when it comes to construction. And it's incredibly rewarding, though, and keeps those, you know, basic 
skills for modeling that that everyone should have and and not uh you know overtly focus on the finishing side so that that's just my two cents well i will say that adam's armor is still available uh, at least in digital form on uh avs uh they have like a digital app i have it on my ipad so you can still you say you still can get it and i have it and it's awesome but i guess to the to the point i love building it's actually my favorite part of of scale modeling for the for a long time i had more assembled models or partially assembled models than i had painted models i'm catching up to uh, painted models but sometimes there's nothing better than just cracking open a kit and getting the plastic out it's i found that that's a a really good way for me to de-stress more so than painting because i stress i stress way more about painting scott knows because i always get spun up in my own head I usually tell him about it, but I don't really stress as much when it comes to building, even though I'm not the the best builder. I make lots of mistakes and, you know, lots of glue marks here and there and, and, you know, silly stuff like that. But I just enjoy it a lot. And I've also started to take photos of my completed builds before they paint, before I paint them for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm trying to get better at it and I'm trying to get better photography. So that's extra practice. And two, it, it really does help you see any issues there may be on the kit if something's not sitting right, because you know, I, I shoot all my photos on the same at the same spot in my little area down here, so it never moves. So if it's not sitting right when I'm taking a picture of it when it's done being built, it's probably not going to sit right after I spend all this time painting, and then I wouldn't notice until I finish it and I'm proud of it and I sit it down and, oh, there's a, a road wheel a, quarter of an inch out or you know obviously not that much but you know you kind of see what i'm saying yeah i I think john this is a great uh great topic i wanted to bring up a couple of points um something that we talked about in a discussion thread that we had as a group here and um that's when i build uh, metal tracks i know they drive some people crazy but i love it I, i go down to my bench and i lay everything out and i throw in some some hard rock tunes in my, in my stereo. And I just go to town and I get lost. And so, you know, there's parts of the build and and it's probably different for each modeler, but there's parts of the build that I just love. And it's, you know, super, super relaxing. So there's that. The other aspect is I've noticed in the past couple of years, I've made a real effort to try and improve my construction and be a little more careful use a little more, you know, spot putty on seams that I probably wouldn't have in the past, clean up the sprue, uh, you know, the parts where the sprue attach a little bit better and just take a little more time um, on it. And I think that pays dividends later on in the build. If during construction, if you're just being a little more careful, a little more conscientious about, you know, what you're doing, I think it just really changes the project down the project timeline. No, for sure. I would definitely agree. The the time you spend early on in the build will pay dividends in the end. And simple things like adding texture, even on rolled armor plate, just adding a little bit of texture when you apply that paint, it just makes the model pop that much more. I feel like, again, Uncle Nightshift, great example where the simplest of things in construction, he takes to that next level where his painting then is almost, you know, it is amplified by that kind of foundational texture that he's then accentuating with his techniques. Yeah, that's a great point as well. It's you certainly it just like you said it takes it to the next level. Yeah, Doug, maybe, you know, to 
kick it over to you. You're working on that perfect grade Millennium Falcon now. I, I don't think there's any other project that we've worked on that has that level of construction, um, just out of the box for that matter. Right. I'm I'm building it straight out of the box. I've got no aftermarket stuff. Maybe on the second one, because I'm building the first one for someone else, and so I'll learn all the all the little things I need to learn to build the next one even better. But yeah, just building anything, I love to watch it come together. I like to see the shape, it take shape. When I built that Focke Wolf 190 for that 48 hour build uh, for the scale officer's mess, that was, that was a lot of fun. And I love just seeing the fuselage go together and get that shape. Then the wings go on and, and it just, it builds more and more. As far as aftermarket stuff, I'm not a, I'm not a big user of aftermarket. Never really got around to it. Um, but this Falcon, 600 plus pieces, and and even with the piping, I'm putting a little piece together on there. And and first of all, the fit is almost flawless. And everything I put on there just makes me say, wow. And And it's just a lot of fun to see how it all comes together. And then you get to the point where you take little parts and put them on big parts and put the big parts together and, and you see something amazing. And it's it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. That build has aftermarket in the box, though. I know you've got like a photo etch and and some lighting as well yeah. in, in yeah. You know, right in the box. Yeah, and the lights are already in one section I've built. I've already put the light bulb in and have the wiring hanging loose, ready to go wherever it goes when I complete it. I also, when we talked about uh, building style and something I didn't mention that I should have that that comes out especially on a build like this big perfect grade falcon is I am a big fan of building and painting in sub assemblies anytime I can paint something that then will allow me to assemble and keep those parts out of the way while I paint the other parts I'm happy to do it as long as the parts still fit right once they're painted I'm down but bandai's tolerances can be kind of tight that way if you're not careful Doug, that is a fantastic point to bring up. I Maybe it's because I just build armor, but I'm almost the exact opposite where I'll want to almost assemble everything before I start painting. And that's even the pioneer tools on vehicles. And then after I paint it, I you know, slip a little piece of paper behind it to mask. But it's, it's interesting you brought that up and I hadn't considered it, but I'm almost on the opposite end of the spectrum of getting everything together as, you know, as much as I can. Now, granted, Aircraft is a little different and sci-fi, but on the armor side, I find myself even putting the tracks and wheels together. And I, I'm, I'm a big cheater in that regard where I glue the wheels and the tracks uh, together and pull them off as a whole assembly. Uh, you know, I think I've had TJ as a convert and Scott's thinking about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's one of my drawbacks with armor is, is I see the way you guys build it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to pull off each wheel and paint it and detail it and then stick it on the model. To me, it it feels wrong just because I'm so, I'm mm-hmm. not used to armor. I feel like it's in the way once, once it's on to do the detail I want to do with it. No, that's a very good point. Scott, you, um, you're a big fool fan. So that, that avoids the uh, problem right then and there. Yeah, I really enjoy them. You know, with with there's so many u- reasons why I like metal tracks. You know, I actually was having some discussions online um, this week about it. You know, the way they sag, the way they sit. But a lot of it is really, as you're putting them together, they're a lot more robust and tough. 
than plastic track is. And so you get a lot less issues with breakage. I built a set of model cast in individual link plastic tracks one time, and I would, I'll never do that again because they're just so fragile. But I really like that because you can, I, I tend to want to always put my tracks on and take them off and put them on and take them off as you're, as you're weathering and painting. But yeah, that's one thing I really like about them. I'm going to, I'm going to second that. I love, I love uh, metal tracks for all and master club. They're so awesome. And, and like Scott, I also enjoy it. I used, um, for for the crusader and even with those little itty bitty links and there's like a over a hundred on each run, it didn't take me long at all. Mine luckily did not need, I did out of like over 200. I had to drill less than five. Oh, that's awesome. And I just sat down here. Um, at my desk, I, my computer right here, I turned on some HBO and just put it on in the background and stuck little pins in, in those little tiny tracks and have a good old time. Went to your happy place. <laughs> I did. Well, to steer back to John's uh, segment here on construction, you know, Doug, um, that point you made about building and sub-assemblies and John, your counterpoint that armor modelers, and I'm guilty of this as well, that want to kind of tend to build everything that we can between paint. I hadn't really thought about sort of the dichotomy of those two approaches. And I can see how Doug would maybe be, you know, a little bit less familiar with that and have a little hesitancy to do that. But I think both approaches definitely have their place. If you were building like one of those new like HK 132nd scale B-17 kits or like a Wingnut Wings Felix Stowe or something, you'd have to build in sub-assemblies. I don't think you could do it any other way oh yeah for sure i don't think so and this is brings up maybe why i don't build so many aircraft is that i i want to build the whole thing before i paint it but now i have countless parts you know strewn about that are painted and from my perspective i'm better with a brush than tweezers and super glue it just terrifies me to have something fully painted and weathered and then try to put it in the exact spot and having one shot for it it's like i'm sweating bullets and I would just rather bring a paintbrush to that battle because uh, I'm confident that, you know, either through masking or if I even if I do make a mistake, most of the time I could remove it or dare I say hide it. But with super glue and, and a finished part that you've worked on, it just uh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. I've got a mental picture of you with tweezers and a part and you're shaking <laughs> and there's beads there's of sweat, sweat on running your down forehead. your forehead. <laughs> that has happened. And then the part goes flinging off into the abyss. And yeah. then I, yeah. I don't say anything but explicit, you know, language for the next 45 minutes. So, yeah. Every time I drop a part, I'm grateful I decided to put yes. laminate on my floor in yes. my model room. Same. My son tried to get me to buy a Star Wars themed rug for the model room. I said, no, <laughs> it's just parts will get lost in there. I don't care how thin it is. Parts are going to get lost yeah, in that. Thing. For sure. Well, gents, I, I think this was a good brief discussion. I'd love to hear from our listeners, especially when it comes to painting before assembly or assembly and then painting. It's something that's an interesting topic and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. All right. Well, uh, Doug, what does our listener feedback look like this week? It's pretty full. Let's get started with uh, Alexander's Models from Estonia. Says he loved episode 19, especially the interview with Stanley George and the roundtable with Jim, Mike, and Dave. He also talks about our thoughts on adding electronics to models and making realistic vegetation in 112 scale. He wraps up by saying he's currently struggling to give more life to his Fallout 4 diorama and posted some shots to the pa- Plastic Posse group. 
says, keep up the good work. Photo etch is sometimes your friend. To quote Bob Ross, we don't make mistakes, just happy little accidents. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that happy little accidents thing. I should paint post pictures at the bottom of my X-Wing for that. <laughs> There's some problems there that actually don't look so bad once I uh, fixed them. Panzer 948 scale modelers said, just listened to episode 19, enjoyed listening to it, especially our interview with Stanley and our roundtable with PMM and Jim Bates. He said we are the first podcast that he added to his new Instagram account that he set up just for the hobby. He's trying to grow his own Instagram and model community in order to see all the great work out there. He says he's a member of the of the AMPS South Carolina Wildcats group, and he heard about our recent announcement that John and TJ may try to come down for the June show. He hopes we can be there as well, as it will be an awesome show. Craig Louther said another excellent podcast, guys. I do enjoy the roundtable episodes, and it's really interesting to hear everyone's viewpoints, and the questions being asked are excellent and thought-provoking. Thanks also for the shout-out. It was one of the rare times my surname wasn't butchered. I hope I didn't do it this time. <laughs> Always keep up the excellent work. We can't promise uh, that we won't butcher names in future episodes, but we really try. I said Louther. Did we say Lothar last time or Louther? I don't remember. I'm sorry, Craig. Robbie? Well, I'm going I'm to butcher this surname. Robbie Nofts. Nofts. Sorry, Robbie. Said that episode 19 was fantastic and our best one to date. He really enjoyed hearing why we are building the things we are. He's also jealous that we are having model shows again while in Canada, they're still a dream. Thanks, Robbie, and I uh, hope you guys get some shows soon. So David Paisley writes in uh, and he says, episode 19 was a great episode and he enjoyed the excellent roundtable. He said, with Mike, Dave, and Jim on it, it felt like a community episode. And, and that's great feedback. Thanks so much, David, because you know that's, that's the whole point of the podcast. We, we want to make it a community and have our interviews more of a discussion than uh, you know, a transaction. He also goes on to say, we made some good points on participation, but said that many modelers struggle to get to shows with family and jobs. No, completely understand. You know, Saturdays during the spring and summer and fall, for that matter, are often spoken for, especially when you have young kids in a large yard. Lastly, he thinks that Jim Bates brought up a great point that doesn't get too much emphasis on competition in U.S. shows. And that even in the social media world, that the emphasis is heavily on top names in the hobby. And that with so many people returning to the modeling scene, that perhaps building incremental skills could use a bit more of emphasis. Definitely would agree. He makes some suggestions for discussion topics and said that he has only listened to the most recent two podcasts so far, and he will be working his way through the backlog over the next few weeks. Thanks, David. Welcome to the posse. All right. And Dukes is back with uh, more terrific feedback. He says, great episode and discussion, guys. Wanted to add two quick thoughts on the subject of photography and viewing models in person. And uh, he says that on cameras, not capturing all the subtle nuances we can see with the naked eye. That's almost always due to the limitations of the camera camera's image sensor which lacks the dynamic range that our eyes have the same reason people get backlit and skies get washed out our eyes adjust crazy fast but cameras can't so trying to capture everything like colors can get crushed together destroying subtle variations better and larger image sensors like those and full frame cameras do a better job but it's still a limiting factor said on the flip side viewing subjects live and in person can be severely degraded by the often garbage lighting at contest venues i found this especially bad with darker subjects which just turn black against the white table covers a meteor mediocre lighting even though i've not been to that many model shows the ones i have been to i can vouch that the lighting is terrible at least the ones that i've been to i mean i know they do their best but it sucks that's the way i remember uh the ogden show which is- it's been a while since I've been to one, Scott, but Ogden, Utah's uh, show is in a uh, 
a hall in what is Union Station. So it was never designed originally for this kind of venue, but literally a, an old railroad building. So yeah, that obviously those aren't designed for great lighting. They're designed for accommodating, you know, large events now that they've been retrofitted. So that's a good point. Oh yeah. Lighting is always a concern and issue. I think at the national level, they do a really good job about that. But some of the local shows, I feel like I'm in a tomb and I'm going to go find the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, one quick thing too, with lighting, I've been to uh, one show in particular. They're no longer at that venue. They would bring floodlights in and point them at the ceiling. I think it only made the situation worse. It felt like I was in a Dexter episode. (laughs) (laughs) Lighting is always an issue. Mike Clages wrote in with this feedback. You are booking really interesting guests. In that vein, might you consider reaching out to the other half of the interesting modeling company, Mr. Mock, I think he's talking about Jonathan Mock, to have him share his perspective on what goes into the artwork he produces and his passion for vintage model experiences? That's a, that's a great suggestion. Um, I haven't spoken with Jonathan before, but appreciate that, Mike. Thanks for the suggestion. Ted Pendergrass wrote in to say, guys, I have, I have to leave you a quick comment and tell you that this was probably one of your best episodes yet. I really enjoyed learning more about Stanley. His enthusiasm for the hobby is awesome. The roundtable discussion was superb as well. Thanks, Ted. And we really enjoyed getting to know Stanley. He's a great guy. Lots of fun, very energetic, and loves the hobby. And that was so much fun. I still can't believe he was a drill sergeant in the Army. He is way too funny and too nice to be a drill sergeant. He's a great guy. We also had a lot of positive feedback for TJ's Demon Vacuum Cleaner and his Border Models Crusader 3. And Brian Latour wrote... In with some really insightful comments about our roundtable, specifically with regards to our discussion on how to make IPMS shows and model shows in general more inclusive. There's quite a bit of feedback there, and I think we're actually going to save it and plan an episode to address Brian's email separately. Thanks for writing us, Brian. We really appreciate that feedback. That's all we've got for this uh, episode, but keep writing to us. We really uh, love hearing from you, and we want to know your thoughts. Thanks, Doug. TJ, social media shout-outs time. Right. So to start that off, uh, we're actually going to have a quick little chat with a friend of the podcast, Will Pattison. So stay tuned for that and enjoy. All right. Well, welcome into another Plastic Posse interview. Today, we're trying something a little bit different as part of our social media shout out section that uh, TJ does in every episode. We're actually going to bring in a great friend of the podcast, uh, Will Pattison. How you doing, Will? Hey, hey, hey. What's up, gangsters? Well, what you been doing since we talked last? Uh, you been uh, staying busy or you just been being a couch potato? Oh, you know, I'm I'm not a couch potato ever by choice. I, I try to stay busy and it's been a, I don't know how long it's been since we hung out, but it's been a, a long winter of remodeling my house and getting my new studio kind of arranged and, and trying to do some projects along the way as well. Um, I finished up a, a chapter for Chris Meddings. He's got a great book coming out. Uh, if you guys know Chris Meddings is, he does Inside the Armor publications and 
has uh, you know he 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 turns out tons of of great books and he invited me to participate in one about um detailing cockpits uh with uh, Tom Ennis and uh, uh one other guy so I think that's going to be really cool. Um, looking for that to come out pretty soon. Um, I got myself involved in a couple of of uh, CAD projects. I've been doing a a kit development project actually with a, a manufacturer. I don't think I can really say yet um, I, until they they announce the release of the kit. But they're a short run uh, resin kit manufacturer. They do really cool and unusual subjects. And uh, through some mutual connections, I got asked to design one of their kits. So um, that's that's been, uh, you know, because I talk a lot of shit about kit engineering. So I, I, you know, had to put my money where my mouth was on this deal. Yeah, you better you better <laughs> deliver on that. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. We'll see. I mean, you know, a resin kit's a whole different deal. Uh, you can get away with stuff that you can't get away with plastic injection molding design and and I have plastic injection molding design in my engineering background. And I, you know, I mean, I know a fair bit about resin molding too, but this was, this, this thing was a challenge. You know, we all know how to, how to like how an airplane model breaks apart or a tank model breaks apart, but this was not either of those. And I had a basically just a shape to work with and trying to turn that into uh, a group of pieces that could be put back together again. It was a brain bender. I, I won't. I won't deny. So, yeah. Hopefully, I don't get. Hopefully, I don't get a bunch of hate for the way it's designed. I'm. You know. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want to be rolling out like Kitty Hawk on my first uh, <laughs> design project. Right. <laughs> We'll see. I may have some slings and arrows coming my way when it when it gets when it when it's out in the wild, but we'll see. Yeah, you do not want to eat crow on that level. I, I don't. I mean, <laughs> if there's one thing that an engineer hates, it's having to recant. Uh, so, but you know, if I if I have to, I have to. I don't mind. I don't mind owning my mistakes. So if somebody pops up and says, "Man, you screwed the pooch on this deal." I hope that uh, I don't prove to be a hypocrite and I can just say, all right, tell me what, tell me why. So I don't make the same mistake next time. Uh, so. Wow. That's awesome. Well, we look forward to, uh, to seeing the reveal on that. And, and also that book, that book sounds terrific. Yeah. I think it's going to be neat. And I, and I've, and I've been, I continue to work on the, on that one thirty second Hasegawa P40 that I chose for the project. And that's been a bit of a wrestling match. That's uh <laughs> That's a kit that involves a substantial amount of body work. You know, if anybody that's familiar, it's not that it's a bad kit or that it's poorly molded because it's typical crisp and uh, robust Hasegawa engineering, but they just chose to get like 300 variants of one aircraft out of one mold cavity. And uh, that involves some compromises. Yeah, filler filler required. The ill-fated rear fuselage section. Yep. Yep. That was fun. That was fun. And, and that actually is pretty good. I think it proved to be the easy part. Well, let's talk about a project that I, I think I like a lot more than apparently that you do that, that resin bust of the, uh, the kind of Tron Tron lady that you did. Cause I thought it was incredible. I really like the color palette you chose. It's really atypical for a subject like that. Well, you, dude, you guys are, <laughs> you guys are good for my ego. Cause <laughs> I feel like, 
I feel like I'm, I'm just not, you know, very good at figure painting, uh, but I continually put myself in the corner on those things. And, and uh, that reconnect bust was a great way to, to try to push myself. Um, it was perfect because it's beautifully, it's digital sculpt and it's from Robot Rocket Miniatures. And that reconnect, it's spelled with a K, it is, you can find the artwork on ArtStation uh, and see the whole thing, which is a, you know, it's an entire sculpt of this robot assassin chick and her, you know, sitting on a bench. And But but this was just the bust and uh, it's beautifully sculpted and it's exactly one piece. So my favorite kind, I didn't have to do any assembly. I could just focus on trying to paint the damn thing. You know, as usual, I, I picked uh, uh, something that uh, instead of just following somebody else's lead and trying to build my skills there, I decided to do my own thing. <laughs> and I, I I really like the aesthetics of, of Jim in uh, Tron Legacy. I mean, come on. That's <laughs> how could you not, right? Yep. And, I'm, and I don't mean just for the obvious reasons, but I liked the, the white and gray and the gray tones. And so I wanted to do that, but I also throw in a splash of color. So I don't know. Uh, it, yeah, it's yeah. I'm looking at it right here on my desk and I'm still ambivalent about the result. I really like the ink work on the pink blanket that's draped over her shoulder. Yeah. I, that's the one part that I feel like I was successful at, uh, but, but it was, you know, it was not, it was not linear. Every time I get into one of these figure painting exercises, I feel like I'm just flailing. I mean, just, you know, imagine a guy, you know, falling off an embankment that's crumbling out from under him and just <laughs> just trying to grab something to keep from. That's how I feel with figure painting. And I, I don't ever end up doing any two of them the same way twice, which is bad. But, uh, you know, this one, I, I guess that 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 thing was was my first real try at using acrylic inks on a figure. And, um, I'm, I'm hooked. I, I love them. They, they offer some things that almost make them like a bridge between acrylics and oils. Yeah. I I think they're pretty cool and I'm going to continue to work with them. Yeah. They're definitely like in vogue now. If you watch any miniature painters on YouTube, like 95% of them are using roller downy inks. It's like all of them. The, The colors are really good. They, I don't know what kind of magic is in there, but you know, they, they will really make colors pop way more than any other kind of acrylic material I've used, but they, you know, you guys have used oils enough to know, right? It's you're, you're working with little tiny bits of oil on the very tip of your brush, mm-hmm. as opposed to loading up the whole belly of the brush with a really thin acrylic paint. I find with acrylic inks that I can work on the tip of the brush like that. I don't know why it's different, but it, it offers me a level of control that I haven't found with acrylics before. And so I don't know. Um, maybe I'm just doing it wrong. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But I'm going to do another one with acrylics here pretty soon. Well, what I liked is, you know, a lot of your subjects tend to be really, you know, lived. I'm generalizing, but they're they're really lived in, whether it's your, your Mad Max uh, Spitfire project or your tractors or even your figures, you know, that fighter pilot that you had that really awesome weathered leather jacket. Everything looks really used and lived in where this figure, you went for that really stark, futuristic, high contrast look. And I know it's out of your comfort zone, but I just I really like the, you know, looking at it in, in contrast to the rest of your work. 
Well, thanks, man. I, I did definitely step out of my comfort zone there on that one. So I, I do appreciate the kind words for sure. So what else have you been up to? I'm sure uh, you've been uh, tinkering with something or fixing something or breaking something or des- <laughs> designing something. Just, you know, uh, those are just days in the life of Rube Goldberg, right? Uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really did literally just kind of finish with my house renovation project just uh, a month or two ago. And and so I'm just kind of learning to live in my new space. You know, my studio is, is cool and we're kind of, you know, kind of getting comfortable with each other. I, I, I put a lot of thought into it. Um, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily turned out the way that I saw it going in my head. So, you know, my, my big scale projects are not that different from my small scale projects. You know, sometimes I'm just flying by the seat of my pants uh, and hoping I don't, eat shit along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of flying by the seat of our pants, I'm kind of uh, getting way off a topic for a TJ segment here, but you know, you've had a YouTube channel for a long time. We talked about it when you were on the show with us the first time, but tell us about what's new uh, on your YouTube channel, what you're doing over there. Oh, my YouTube channel is still doing, you know, just uh, dorky and and nerdy and way too long winded and and, and way too far (laughs) off into the details. I mean, you guys know I get I get off in the weeds with the minutia and the nuances. But that's that's my thing. I, you know, as long as uh, as long as I don't feel like anybody else's channel is is doing the same thing, I'm going to keep doing it because there's a few people anyway who who like that. And uh, when somebody comes along and says, hey, man, I just really appreciate you taking the time to explain the why in addition to the what, uh, that, that's, you know, that's, that's all the validation that I need. So I'm just going to keep at it. Well, I noticed that you've uh, kind of in, in introduced a new feature for your Patreon subscribers where on Saturdays you actually do a, a live chat. And I know among other subjects, you talk about 3D printing, but talk a little bit about what you've been doing on Saturdays. Well, so it's it's not a new feature for, for my Patreon subscribers because I didn't have any before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a Patreon page for a long time, you know, so that I could check out stuff that other people were doing, you know, like, like uh, Martin's uh, Patreon page. I'm a member over there and you know, so for me, it was just a one-way thing where I was taking in content and I had never made the commitment to go the other way and, and try to provide my own content on Patreon. I, you know, I, I part of it was that I just really could not think of what to do. Why would somebody want to go pay money to interact with, with me? I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm, I mean, and that's not just because I'm a cheap bastard either. I just, you know, I, I'm all about getting my money's worth. And I'm not sure Will Pattison on Patreon is, is that. But I, so I was like, all right, what can I do that's different? Uh, so I decided to start a Q&A thing. And so what it is, uh, is uh, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, I'm doing a live stream, open question and answer. And it's, you know, I've been trying to keep it to an hour and uh, we've been sticking to that pretty well. And basically it's just bring, you know, whatever, uh, whatever your questions are. If you're having trouble with your airbrush, if, if you have a question about chipping, if you want to know what painting with MRP is like, 
if you want to talk about 3D printing, whatever it is, I'm, I'm open to whatever. And, you know, my, my commitment is that I'm going to try and provide good answers uh, right there live. And if I can't, you know, if I don't have the answer, I'm going to go off and find it and we'll, we'll loop back uh, around to it. Because the, patron, the people who, who are, are patrons of the page also have access to the recordings. So people can find me on social media and shoot their questions to me during the week. And if they can't be there on Saturday morning, I'm still going to take care of their question. And then they can go back and listen to the recording later. And so that's, you know, that's what you get for your 10 bucks a month. I, I have exactly one tier, uh, pay the 10 bucks, get access to me on Saturday morning and access to the recordings. One thing that I am doing though, is one, every fourth uh, session is exclusively Fusion 360. For those not familiar, that's Autodesk's uh, 3D CAD package that's available to us because they have a personal use license that lets you use it for free. So if you want to do uh, 3D printing, design's got to come from someplace. Um, and, and there's going to be plenty of times uh, where there's the only choice is to do it yourself. And that means you got to have some CAD, uh, some, some CAD uh, skills. And that's what I'm doing uh, is helping guys who are you know trying to get up the learning curve with that. So that's the Patreon thing. Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, you know, I've been trying to figure out when I'm actually going to get the 3D printer. And what, honestly, one of the biggest hurdles to my acquisition of a printer is the CAD side of it. Uh, you know, unlike, unlike you, you've got that engineering background and the CAD background. I don't have any of that. And so, you know, the, the prospect of having to learn that skill set is a little daunting. So sounds like I better sign up. Well, I would love it. Um, and, and if there's demand, um, you know, if, uh, I will do more than every fourth Saturday uh, on Fusion 360. It just really is going to be, you know, on what, on what the customers want, because that's how I look at it. I'm just making myself available, deliver whatever I can to, to hopefully add value and, and help people build their, their information base. And, and, you know, CAD is just, I mean, not intuitive for a lot of people. It's it's just a weird way of, of thinking. But once you kind of get over the hump and you kind of get the basic thing down, you find that you can do most anything relatively easily. But it's good to have somebody help you get over the hump. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool. You know, we've been doing some recordings on Saturdays, but I'm going to definitely check it out and sign up. So you'll have a plus one from uh, from me anyway. I would love that. That's great. I've also kind of put out there, I haven't made a big deal out of this, but I had a guy who uh, who uh, signed up with me last year to do one-on-one coaching. And that was a little bit of an experiment. All of this really is. Uh, but uh, he was like, hey, look, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm 65 years old. I just retired. I want to get back into model making. And I don't want to take five years to learn all this stuff. I want somebody to get me up the learning curve as fast as possible. I'm like, hey, that sounds like the kind of challenge that I'm into. And so, you know, he and I agreed on a specific number of sessions and I, I, I worked with him. Uh, we'd, we'd get together via Zoom every two to three weeks, whatever his schedule dictated. And, uh, you know, he'd send me pictures of his work uh, in the meantime. And so then when we got together, you know, we could address any issues or questions that he had. And, I, you know, we, I basically took him all the way through uh, building a kit. That's why I built that, that little Tamiya Spitfire last year. Because I kind of felt like, hey, if I'm going to try to coach this guy on how to build this thing, I should build it along with him. 
and uh, and that's what happened there. So that was a little bit experimental. I really enjoyed that, and I will still do that if somebody was interested. Um, and then this you know this group uh, live stream thing is is also just experimental. Um, I, I don't I you know I, I know a lot of figure painters do stuff on Twitch. And, you know, they've kind of paved the way for doing that sort of live stream thing. And so I don't know, you know, we'll see. I don't know if the scale modeling market is, is into that, but we'll see. I think it, I think it probably could be. Um, I mean, I know, yeah, you, you are right. Uh, miniature painters. I mean, that's, it's huge on Twitch. I mean, there's, I don't know the numbers and the specifics. I'm not really into Twitch, but a lot of the people I follow on YouTube, that's what they do like two or three right. times a week. They're on twitch for like three or four hours a day just painting yeah. and talking yeah and and i you know and i'm sure that some of those guys are making bank and and that's not really my goal i'm you know i'm not trying to turn this into a job but it's another just fun outlet for me and if i can add some value and you know make a little beer money on the side then that's cool so what is the future uh for you hold after you get done with this p40 got any plans for a next project you know, I've been thinking about that a lot because I have come to this horrible realization that my my completion rate is uh, just anemic. I I finished two things last year. I finished a bust painting project uh, that I did, and then I did that little Spitfire, and and I did a lot of work because I, I mean I I got to the end of the year and I was like, you know, WTF? I've been at my bench, you know, consistently as much as I always have, but I don't have anything to show for it. And the truth is I got into some projects that I didn't really talk much about that proved to be larger bites than I anticipated. And and one of them I spent a lot of time on last year still isn't done and I don't know when it will be. I I so I don't know. I I have to I have to stop getting down the rabbit hole for a while and you know even though I'm not ever really that concerned about how many models I crank out in a given year. I, I just kind of feel like I, I bogged down. And so I, I don't know. I've been thinking about that Ming, uh, that Ming Super Hornet 148. Yeah. I love the Super Hornet, uh, the one with one seat, not the station wagon with two seats. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that might be pretty cool. I don't know. We'll see. You know, to your point, TJ and I have talked about this. TJ. Is is actually, I mean, he's really prolific as far as number of completions. Yeah, and uh, you know, and like good I've, stuff too. Only yeah, only oh, recently, yeah. and they're okay. Like I've told him, you know, I've I've spent all this time kind of working on individual skills and experiments, but finishing kits, finishing projects is a skill, mm-hmm. and my that skill for me is just rusty as hell. Anyway, that's a great point. Well, TJ, uh, what are we going to do to get this guy to come to Nats in August in Vegas? <laughs> I don't know, man. What, what, what's it going to take? I don't know. I, you know, the whole thing, um, I mean, it's it's about a 12-hour drive from where I live. Um, and then, you know, I could get there. But I'll be honest with you guys. I, I'm a little freaked out about going to something that I think, where I think everybody's still going to be wearing a mask. That's That's just the blunt truth of it. And it's I, let me be clear i think wearing a mask is is the right thing to do i think it's the responsible thing to do until we get you know kind of kind of past the whole vaccination thing and 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 then we feel like you know that as a country we can be safe uh that way so i don't have a problem with the masks themselves i just 
maybe you guys can relate to how strange the world has felt for the last year because <laughs> even when we're, we're watching TV, like you're watching a football game or a motocross race in my case, or just anything and everybody's face is covered up. And, uh, you know, I, I'm typically not super reactive to these type of things, but I, I've discovered that the, that that's kind of weighed on me. And I, I don't know how I feel about going to something that's supposed to be like a big celebration, you know, and, and a contest and all the things that I kind of dig and I can't see anybody's face. That's an interesting perspective. I hadn't really yeah. thought of that about that before, but there is kind of a, a little bit of a, a stigma to that, you know, now that you mention it, like it's, you said, in sporting events, all kind of faceless faces in the crowd, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's just weird, you know, like, like, like I, you know, I was at the drive up at Arby's the other day and, and, you know, this girl's handing me my food and, and, and it's just, you know, I see this black rectangle and a pair of eyes and a hat brim. And, and it's like, man, this just, is such a weird and, and unnatural way for us to have to deal with the with with each other and with the world and and I just so I don't know I because because for me if I go to net I mean it's it's an effort I with my spinal cord injury I have to you know really plan out my my travel because it's hard for me to be comfortable you know I can I, you know I don't walk very well and going into unfamiliar environments just jacks me up. And so if I'm going to do it, it's a major commitment for me and I'm willing to take that on, uh, but I want it to be worth it. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I want it to really be worth it. So I, it's, I just, I don't know. I, I just, yeah, that's, that's, that's some deep truth right there, guys. Well, if you do make that commitment, man, uh, we'd love to buy you a steak and a beer while we're down there. I'd love to meet you in person. Well, I would love to do that too. I will take you up on that for sure. If nothing else, isn't that thing uh, coming back to Texas? Uh, in yeah, next year, I think. Yeah, some. I, I, yeah, I can't remember what, but I, you know, that was part of their deal. And having to uh, cancel it was that they would loop back around. So, yeah, and by then, you know, hopefully we'll be back on track. And yeah, I'll have some. I'll have some things to show. So I think when we had you on last time, Will, I think we touched on a little bit um, what you've been watching on YouTube or any other social media. So that was probably like six months ago, maybe longer. Mm -hmm. so, maybe so there's a lot of new stuff out there, a lot of different stuff out there. Is there anything new or interesting that you've been checking out on YouTube as a YouTube content provider yourself? Um, I, not, uh, not so much on YouTube. Um, I, you know, I'm pretty boring, I guess. I, 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 I'm probably still doing the same stuff on YouTube that I was at that time, at least that would be of any interest to the, you know, to this audience. Um, I watched, I watched the Hill on, on YouTube. You guys familiar with those, with those, with those folks, Crystal Ball so. and Cigar and Jetty. Uh, hopefully I said that right. It's a it's it, you know, it's allegedly a neutral political kind of newscast and I'm a hardcore independent. So I kind of like their point of view. They kind of thrash both the left and the right equally. And that appeals to me. So <laughs> uh, I watch those guys, but in the model making space, I've been, uh, I, I mean, dude, the podcast uh, offerings have become pretty rich, right? I mean, you guys have got some competition out there. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, do. There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of podcasts in the space. That's for sure. Uh, you know what? And it's great for us as listeners. I mean, we, you know, I'm like, I have a, had a long list of podcasts that I've listened to for years, 
and I've fallen behind on them because I'm like, oh, I got to keep up with the model making podcasts. So it's a good thing. But I, you know, the on the bench guys are still continuing to do a great job. I mean, they've, you know, they've paved the way for, for everybody in the space. You guys are doing a fantastic job. I mean, I, you know, I, I really commend what you guys have done. Uh, you know, you've gotten some interesting guests. Um, I had some, you know, sketchy ones early on, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you guys have done a good job and, and I, and it's fun to watch. So, you know, I, that's, that's, that's been pretty much, pretty much it as far as that, that part goes. Well, we, we appreciate that very much. Very kind. Yeah, I've been watching, um, with interest, uh, Matt's experiments, uh, seeing him get into three, 3d printing. In addition to his normal, you know, outstanding model making, him, you know, playing with different resins and different print layers and multiple printers. Now that's been pretty, uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, he he will probably want to stab me for saying this, but but had he not decided to be a history major and a copywriter, he would have made a great engineer. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he, because he, he, you know, he, he has that methodical and disciplined approach to figuring things out and coming to a, you know, a good, uh, a good solution. And I, you know, I admire that. It's, it's fun to watch. Will, uh, we've kept you a little bit longer than we promised. So thank you very much. L- uh, let everybody know out there your YouTube channel and also the details on your Patreon if they're interested in those uh, chats. Yeah, just under my name, it's just Will Pattison. In both cases, uh, you should be able to find me on either either way. Worst case, you know, come find me over at uh, Scale Modelers Critique Group. I'm pretty easy to find in there um, and, you know, on Facebook in general. So, yeah, uh, hit me up. We'll put the details in the show notes, uh, as always, in our episode show notes and on the Facebook page as well. Right on. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, Will, it's always great to talk. Uh, We need to have you back. We need to uh, do a roundtable on uh, some paint sometime. We've talked about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that would be fun. I I think, uh, and I think that that one would add a lot of value for a lot of users. Because I continue to see more questions about paint than anything, uh, you know, when you circulate around Facebook groups and, and there's just more angst and more information, misinformation <laughs> about paint than uh, any other single thing we deal with as model makers. So I think that would be a great, a good, a good you know, good service and good fun. Well, thanks a lot, Will. We'll talk with you soon. And uh, man, you've always got an open chair here whenever you can join us. Well, thanks. You guys always make me feel welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. Man. Take care. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed uh, chatting with Will. It's always interesting. Um, he's always got a lot of cool things to say, and it's always great to, to talk to him. If you look at our show notes, in addition to all the regular social media shout outs, we'll have information about Will's new uh, Patreon and his YouTube channel on there as well, if you guys are interested in uh, checking that out. And just to remind everyone, we have a Twitter account now, and it's at Posse Podcast. So if you're on Twitter, I'm sorry, but go ahead and check out uh, check out our Twitter account and give us a follow and share your work with us at uh, hashtag Plastic Posse Podcast. Same thing goes with Instagram. If you're on Instagram, you can follow us at Plastic Posse Podcast and also share work with us with hashtag Plastic Posse Podcast.
Okay, so we're going to start with YouTube uh, tonight, and we're going to go with uh, Scale-A-Ton Models. I'm sure a, a lot of people probably have seen his his channel, but I also found out today that uh, I think in SMCG uh, they posted uh, his latest build, and a lot of people were not familiar with him, which I was surprised because I think he's got quite a few subscribers, but man, he is... He is something else, and this time he 3D printed an aircraft carrier catapult section uh, for a 172nd scale F-14, and it is amazing. It's pretty awesome. The 3D printing stuff was amazing, but it's worth watching twice just for the way he weathers the aircraft carrier deck, the sections, and put you know puts the rubberized stuff down in the paint. I mean, it's it's spectacular. And correct me if I'm wrong, he designed it as well, correct? That's mm-hmm. that yeah. that's doubly impressive. I mean, holy cow, that's that's a skill set that I certainly don't have. All right, and uh let's jump over to Facebook now. And we're gonna highlight the Weathered Models Facebook group. Um if you get on uh Facebook and you just search for Weathered Models, you should see it. It's a it's a huge group, um, lots of modelers, and they like to do different hashtags uh for different themes and this week is inspiration week. So instead of posting your own work, you post work of people that have inspired you with the hashtag inspiration week. If they're in the group, you can tag them. If not, you know, obviously mention who they are. Now, me personally, I posted mine today. I chose Mike Rinaldi, of course, and I chose Martin Kovac, of course, and I chose Andy Moore, who I first learned about when I started making Star Wars models. He also does armor. And then I also chose none other than our own John Manani, because John has been a constant inspiration to me personally, and I had to let everybody know. You're making me blush over here, man. I really <laughs> appreciate that. I really do. And you certainly inspire me. It goes both ways, for sure. Your sci-fi stuff, I, I can't even begin to describe how I could do something like it. So uh, it's, it's give and take, and I really appreciate that. That's very humbling. Uh, it's well-deserved. All right. Um, and. Hopping over to my favorite platform, Instagram, uh, I went with Ed Model Citizen, who is E-H Model Citizen, and he's Canadian. Therein lies the joke. He's a very talented modeler, uh, mainly from what I can see, armor, and he does a balance between uh, World War II and more modern stuff, and what caught my eye was a whitewashed KV-2 that I thought looked fantastic, and he even did like built-up snow on the fenders. Um, if anyone, if you're familiar with the uh, KV series, they have those big fat, you know, wide fenders over the big old fat tracks, which typically were modelers like to pile dirt and debris. But uh, this one, since it's whitewashed, he piled up snow and I thought it was really good. It's, I think snow is one of those things that's really hard to get right. And I thought it looked pretty convincing. Yeah, I would agree. TJ snow is, one of those elements, it's super hard to model, but if you nail it, it really looks terrific. He is Canadian. He ought to know snow. <laughs> yeah, and checking out his Facebook page, in addition to modeling, it looks like he builds slippers as well. So there you go. I have no I have no response to that. <laughs> he legit builds slippers. <laughs> he builds slippers. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I don't think I don't think I saw any of those on his Instagram. I'll have to check out his Facebook page. I'm sorry, they're bison hide moccasins. They're on Instagram. They were posted December of this year. Those are sli- those are those are those slippers. Are slippers. 
All right. And for our wild card, we have a YouTube channel called Tank Models Channel. And uh, specifically, there's an ISU-152 video that is pretty neat. Yeah, this was my recommendation only because it dropped. I think it dropped, you know, not just within the last week, but I recently discovered the full length video and it's really inspiring. It's all in Russian. However, pictures are worth a thousand words and you can learn a lot because of just how detailed the the person is. They show you the product they're using, how they're applying it and really, really good high quality video. So I would definitely check it out and uh, I'm certainly going to use it on my next uh, Russian build. And as always, we're going to add these links on our Facebook page and Scott will also add the links to the show notes. So when you get a chance, if you're cruising any of these social media platforms, check them out. If you're not already following them or subscribe to these modelers content, please do and support them in the hobby. Yeah. And as always, if you've got suggestions for some modeling related content that you think we ought to take a look at, uh, shoot that to us in an email at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on our Facebook page. Uh, Same thing goes if you've got your own channel, you're generating your own content, shoot it over to us. Let us take a look at it and we'll uh, take a look at it. And if we love it, we'll talk about it here on the show. Well, now it's time for this episode's interview segment. And we're delighted to have the one and only Brett Green, uh, you know, author, magazine and uh, publication editor and founder of Hyperscale. You know, Doug, Scott and I had a privilege of talking with him. So sit back, stay tuned and uh, hopefully, hopefully you learn something. All right. Well, welcome into another Plastic Posse podcast interview. Today, we are extremely excited to bring you a really amazing guy. He's contributed so much to scale modeling, Brett Green from uh, Sydney, Australia. Welcome to the show, Brett. I didn't realize you were talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Brett is a man of many, many talents. Um, He is uh, the creator of certainly one of the, if not the largest website on scale modeling, uh, hyperscale.com. I think I was on there the other day and there was a counter down at the bottom that said page views was something like 150 million page views there. He also has uh, missing links uh, as well and and several other kind of specialized um, websites. He's got a YouTube channel, uh, which is youtube.com slash hyperscale. He's got a Facebook page with, I think, over 11,000 followers, which is hyperscale missing links. I mean, we could just go on and on. He's the editor of Model Military International Magazine. He's an aspiring musician. Last but certainly not least, he's just a terrific modeler. So again, we're really, really thrilled to speak with you, Brett, and have you on the show with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Scott. All right. Well, for those of our listeners that might not be familiar with you or your work, Brett, tell us a little bit about yourself. When did you start making models? You know, how how did it all get started? My first memory of making models was actually having a plastic model, an airfix kit. I think it might have been a Lysander or something like that, bought for me by my mother after I had a, an appointment at the dentist. So it was kind of uh, you know, the compensation for the pain, really. And I was hooked, basically, from the age of, I don't know, what would have been seven or eight, I guess. I was hooked. 
and uh, I would always be spending my my 20 cents pocket money uh, at the local uh, news agency where they had like one of these uh, trees of uh, bagged ethics kits and frog kits and a few Ravel kits as well, some of the exotic stuff. So, uh, yes, it, it goes back a long way. When did uh, modeling kind of move from more than just a fun hobby as a kid to a little bit more serious, uh, maybe more of a job or a profession even? It was unexpected in, in a way. I, I had the usual break that a lot of us do when I discovered girls and cars and not necessarily in that order. But um, I came back to it again after I was married, more, more time spent at home, and uh, I set up a little workshop in the garage and just uh, picked up where I left off probably you know seven or eight years earlier. And, of course, then I guess modelling became something a little bit different. It was more an integration of you know, that, that tactile model building, but it was also an interest in history and being able to hook up the, the stories with the plastic to a certain extent. And I got very interested. I joined a, a local club. We had an IPMS club in Sydney, which I joined, uh, met a lot of like-minded fellows. And for a couple of years, I was editing the IPMS New South Wales magazine. And at the time, I was working as a systems engineer in a telecommunications company, we were just just seeing the beginnings of the internet there in the late 1990s, mid to late 1990s. And I was playing around a little bit with uh, web pages and I suggested to our club that perhaps I could start a club website. But they weren't quite ready for that at that point. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll do it anyway. The reason for that was that we had this really good magazine but it had a circulation of, I think it might have been 200 or so, which was actually pretty good for a club magazine at the time. But it was a lot of work putting it together and uh, finding contributions and uh, spending time at home photocopying and stapling and folding and you know, got the family involved in all of that. And I thought there must be an easier way to, to, on the one hand, broaden the amount of contributions that we get and also broaden our audience to, to something a bit more worldwide. So that's why I thought, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll do this website anyway. And I initially thought, well, let's call it Wings on the Web, because at that stage I was contributing to a website which still exists now called Tracklink. Paul Owen in Canada runs great website, and it, it was a bit of a yeah. revelation to me to to see my work up on this website and to you know, very large audiences as well. So I thought maybe if I can do something equivalent to that for aircraft, that would be great. But on second thoughts, I thought, well, maybe I should actually leave my options over open and, and just give it a more generic modeling name rather than specifically an aircraft modeling name. I literally cut up pieces of paper with words that related to modeling on one side and the, then the internet on the other side. So I had, you know, web, internet, scale model, scale model, airplane, blah, blah, blah. And I, I just shuffled them around on the, on the table until I came up with a combination that I liked. And the one that I liked the best was, was Hyperscale. So I thought, okay, let's register that name, which I did, started up the website. My first big challenge was actually finding software that I could use because I, I was not a web designer at that time. There weren't very many people who were, in fact. And I was using a piece of software called uh, Microsoft Front Page, which is pretty crude by today's standard. But I used it for the best part of 10 years on Hyperscale until I moved on to Dreamweaver. And at that point, uh, my plan was basically to 
to build up the number of users and visitors on the website. Remember, this is the late 1990s. And then I wanted to basically sell it to a, a, a corporate media outfit, effectively like, you know, a News Limited here or and there as well, of course, uh, who had a, a new sort of portal with lots of uh, websites and, and then get them to employ me to run it. So I never really expected to be doing this all by myself. But the circumstances were that when the, the NASDAQ crash happened, I think in the late 1990s, the company that was hosting my, my websites suddenly looked at the number of visitors that I had and the amount of download that I was generating. And they said, oh, we've been charging you $100 a month for this for the last couple of years, but we've actually calculated what it's costing us and we're going to charge you $1,000 a month for this. And I, oh. and I thought, oh, <laughs> at this stage I had no advertising, of course. And, uh, and so I just put a farewell message on, on the internet to say, look, you know, it's been really good for the last couple of years, but, you know, found this problem and uh, I'm going to have to shut down the site. And I had a lot of messages from who were saying, not only just don't shut down, but they also said two things. First of all, why don't you host your website in the USA because it's much cheaper? And it made sense as well because even at that early stage, by far the biggest number of visitors we had were from the USA. So it was also closer. It would be faster for them. And they also said, why don't you get advertising to actually pay for it? So I thought, okay, that's fair enough, but I don't want to spend all my time chasing all these advertisers for 20 bucks a month. Let's find one big advertiser who will support the site and then I can get on with what I want to do, which is you know, growing the content on hyperscale. And at this stage, I'm still running with a corporate job in the telecommunications industry, as well as, uh, of course, having a, a young family at home. So I, I was busy. I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. At this stage, I thought, now, who would be the biggest company in the model industry that I can think of? And that, at the time, was Squadron. I thought, I'll, I'll conduct a little exercise, which will hopefully grab me some advertising, but it will also kind of prove the point to the advertiser. So I, I posted a note on Hyperscale's new uh, forum, and I just wrote on the forum, Jerry Campbell, please contact me. So um, I knew what his phone number was. I, I knew what his email address was, but I, I just wanted to see if he was listening. And sure enough, overnight, because I, I left the message late at night my time, in the morning I had a, a message from Jerry Campbell saying, uh, give me a call. What do you want to talk about? So I thought, great, he's, he's looking. <laughs> he's interested. And we had a discussion and then, then Squadron became my sole sponsor for, for a period of time. And at, at that point, I thought, well, is, is this something that's more sustainable? And surprisingly, once again, I, I think I mentioned before, I didn't want to go chasing advertising. I didn't want to become an advertising person. I wanted to, to continue to work on the, the modeling content of the website. But I had all these companies like uh, Media Productions and, and Tester coming to me and saying, hey, we'd like to advertise on your hyperscale site as well. So I thought, okay, I'll leave Squadron as my sole retail sponsor and I'll kind of pick a sponsor from a number of other categories. So we had accessories and we had a book sponsor with Osprey and we had, uh, you know, the resin company with, with media productions and so forth. And it worked really, really well for a long, long time. So at that point also, I was getting offers to write books. 
for Eagle Editions uh, and also for Osprey Publishing, Classic Publications. And it just got to the point where there weren't enough hours in the day to do the corporate job and do this other stuff as well. So naturally, I decided to ditch the corporate job. <laughs> and, and never a better decision was made, I can tell you. People told me at the time, and even now, the same thing with the music. They say the same thing. Oh, if you're doing it for work, you'll just get bored. It'll just become like a job and it'll be terrible, a dull routine. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's fun. It is fun. Yeah, I, I, My wife keeps on saying, well, I've got to go to work. I say to her, well, you know, I go to work as well. <laughs> so I'm, so that, that was a very long answer to a very short question. Oh, That's no. about when when I got serious about it was was when the sponsors really started kicking in. Now, was that late 90s, early 2000s? Late, what kind of we're talking late was? 90s, basically, yeah. We're talking sort of 99, maybe early 2000. Brett, you've contributed so much to the global modeling community. I, I guess I'm curious to know which aspect of scale modeling that you're the most passionate about. I mean, what really drives you to keep doing everything that you do? I, I'd have to say it's still World War II aircraft. That's what I wanted to do when I was seven years old, and that's what I still want to do now. I, I do really enjoy a sort of a bit of a sorbet, a bit of a break uh, between courses with uh, with military vehicles as well. So the last one that I that I finished is um, Samia's Wesper, which I actually built in 2018. With its overall yellow, I thought, eh, <laughs> it's a bit dull, so I put it away. But I finally decided to rescue it from the the shelf of doom and uh, and finish that and yeah i love doing that sort of stuff the the figures are are brilliant as well just every now and then i like to do some figures uh not a great figure painter but um you know i keep on trying but yes certainly world war ii aircraft is you know what i what i really love yeah that's i I guess that's a another thing i was kind of wondering you've always been known as a big fan of uh being a big fan of luftwaffe aircraft and I think a big part of that is because of, you know, the the real diversity in paint schemes on the subject. So are you still building and painting lots of BF-109s? Yeah, very much so. Limited only by the fact that I know that I can't only build 109s. So um, when, I, when I consider the content of the magazines, I really have to consider that we need a breadth of scales and eras and specific aircraft types. And although I would... <laughs> I'd build 109s and 190s until the cows came home. <laughs> what I really need to do is is have as much diversity as possible to, to do two things for magazine readers in particular. First of all, we want to cater to their specific requirements, what, what they like the best. But also, we want to show them some stuff that they mightn't have considered that they may want to actually do that they hadn't considered before. So, yes, uh, really, limitation is only... The, the realistic expectations of the job. <laughs> Are you still building with Chris? Do you still do builds where um, the work, the two of you work on a kit together? We haven't done one for a while, but I'm sure that we will again someday. Chris has been working on a couple of fairly big projects over the last year or so uh, that have been keeping him busy. But yeah, there's nothing I like better than doing a build, you know, documenting it in detail in photographs and then handing it over to Chris for painting. It's um, it's amazing to see his work. You can imagine it, it looks fantastic online, but it looks even better in in real life. Well, I was just going to go with a personal story. Uh, Scott had mentioned late war Luftwaffe. 
Brett, you're still a, uh, how can I say this? You're still an icon among many circles within IPMS because I think it was back in the 05 timeframe, you gave a, a briefing on late war Luftwaffe a seminar and you passed around a piece of an aircraft and, and Barry Numeric, you, you know, Barry, you know, 109 guru still talks about like that day. It was like, it was, um, it was like his child, like a child was born, like just the discussion he was in his element. And, and I, and it just a personal anecdote that, you know, your expertise and passion for the subject matter certainly rubs off on a lot of people. And, and I, I just wanted to share that story to you uh, that people still talk about. It. Oh, that's great. And particularly coming from Barry, that's a very high, high compliment. So thank you. <laughs> John. Thank you very much, Barry. <laughs> but yes, I remember that. I think um, I had a whole bunch of photos of a yeah. G6 at the Australian War Memorial work number 16382. Mm-hmm. Fantastic airplane. And the best thing that Australia ever did uh, in terms of military curatorship, was not touching that aeroplane in terms of the camouflage and markings. So they dusted it off, they put it back together, and it's in exactly the colours that it was when it was packed in its crate in northern Germany in 1945. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Just that's Yeah. Uh, I, I've actually – I think the next model I'll be working on is a, is an Australian conversion for the new Airfix Beaufort, and I, I was looking back through – some of my photos, uh, museum photos of um, there are a couple of Beaufort uh, nose sections in museums in Australia. I read a, a sign that was propped up the front of one of the Beaufort noses, which looks in beautiful condition. I assume that it had been repainted, but the the um, the note says this aircraft was built at the railway workshops at uh, Chalora, which is a, a factory in Sydney. Essentially, it was uh, the nose was assembled there. They actually assembled the, the fuselages and engines and other bits and pieces in different parts of the country. So they had this uh, this nose that was never actually attached to an aeroplane. It was put into a crate, and then in the 1970s, it was opened up by this museum in brand-new condition, painted brand-new condition. And it, it, it's quite amazing when you see the colours on this thing. So it is actually the, 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 the original wartime colours. It's such a rare opportunity to see something in its in its initial original colours. Yeah, opening a time capsule. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, museums seem to really want to to paint over these things, but I really wish they wouldn't because <laughs> it's much more interesting when they're uh, in their original colours. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to go on a you know a personal one. I don't know if you saw on Facebook recently. There's a P40 in New Zealand, Mark. Yes, yes. They, and, and they fired it up. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I was. I mean, unbelievable. I was in touch with the guy who took those photographs yesterday, actually. Oh, nice. Asking permission to use those. Did you see the <laughs> national markings, how the, the, the weathering was happening on those national markings? And so yeah. there's the photograph. It, it's not as obvious as the other ones, but it's inside the workshop, and you can see the wings from above with that, with that U.S. dark green uh, scalloping mm-hmm. on the, the leading edge. and tr- Yes. Fantastic. Uh, anybody, yeah, have a look at Facebook. Look for, uh, what would you search for? You'd search for, um, what was the girl's name? I shared it on my page. I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. You know, whenever you find it, because it's uh, it's it's really, anybody who's interested in, in camouflage and markings or New Zealand aircraft or P-40s is going to love this. Oh, very, very cool. Yeah, we'll check that out. Before I uh, turn uh, turn the time over here to Doug, I wanted to talk with you. You recently finished that new Arma Hobbies 148 scale PZL. Yeah, it yeah. really turned out terrific. But I haven't built an Arma Hobbies kit yet, but they certainly 
have quite a reputation. What was that build like? How, how did you enjoy that? It was a delight, an absolute delight. The, the only slight challenge is that there are some really big attachment points between the sprue and the parts on the yeah. leading and trailing edges of the wings, and you, you really have to be careful. I wasn't careful enough, and I, I gouged out a couple of big chunks. Beyond that, once the parts are prepared, the, the build was, was delightful. It was really very pleasant. I, I, I just received overnight also a Facebook message from a company called uh, Bitskrieg who are releasing yes. a resin radiator for the, the side of the fuselage on the, the PZL. PZL sounds better, actually. I, I think I'll say PZL from now on. <laughs> and it's, it, it's exquisite. It is absolutely beautiful. It looks like it's hollow. It's a, a single resin piece, but it really has that sort of air-cooled radiator, you know, like, like it's on the side of a motorcycle. So have a look around for that. That's Bitskrieg. And if you're building the, the PZL, then I would highly recommend this as a, a resin accessory that's worth having. It's a great cool. recommendation, yeah. But no, it's a beaut- It's a lovely, lovely kit. Well, you know, one of the beautiful things about your long answers to short questions is you've already answered some of my questions. Oh, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is just fine. I, I'd like to ask uh, this. Um, hyperscale, it's grown to be one of the largest, if not the largest scaling scale modeling forum site on, on, on the web. Do you have any numbers? Do you have... Is there anything you can share with us that kind of give us an idea of how big you are? I, I used to pay a great deal of attention to that. And I, I've got to admit, I've just been so busy, I haven't had a chance to look at it recently. The, the numbers on the, on the front page are still valid as far as visitor numbers and visitors per month, I think, or week. But I, I've honestly lost track to a certain extent of, of what the numbers are. I, I do, from time to time, go into the forums and I check the general trends. So the the trends I'm mainly looking for are the number of visitors and the number of posts viewed. And in reality, there doesn't seem to have been very much change over the last three or four years. There's been a, a slight dip in the in number of actual postings themselves. But I think that's because you know, a lot of the questions have been asked over the last 20 to 23 years. <laughs> what has surprised me more, though, is that we haven't had a major drop in uh, visitor numbers or even a really noticeably major drop in, in postings. When you consider how much competition there is out there for you know, the, the, the forum mind of, uh, of the worldwide modeler, not the least being Facebook, of course, but there are an awful lot of uh, YouTube channels. There are a, a lot of websites as well and Facebook itself. I'm just amazed that... Uh, that hyperscale. I'm very pleased. I've got to say that hyperscale is is you know, still going really, and I'll keep it going as long as people seem to want it. There. Very cool. Did you have any idea how big this could get when you started? Did not have a clue. No, didn't have a clue. <laughs> what I particularly didn't appreciate was the hunger that our American visitors had for the subject, and that they instantly went to like eighty percent of our, our visitors from from almost the first day, and. It was exponential. It was literally exponential. When you looked at the statistics on the first day, it would double. Second day, it would double again. Third day, it would double again. It, was, it just kept on doubling for uh, for weeks and weeks until it got up to you know quite a, a large amount. And then it still grew, but um, obviously uh, a little slower than, than doubling. <laughs> but for quite a while, it was exponential. That is so awesome. My my thought in the first place was to to sell it off to a, an Australian media company, but 
uh, obviously fairly quickly I realized that it's not in anybody's best interests to have Hyperscale considered to be an Australian website. It is very much a global uh, phenomenon, I think. Yeah, it's really it's really a community uh, more than, uh, like you said, a regional resource. It's, it's incredible. British modelers, German modelers, American modelers, it really is a community. Yeah, that, that word is one that I use a lot. And yes, I, I very much want it to be a community. I want it to be welcoming. I want people you know, to be civilized where possible. Not necessarily, you know, saying that people shouldn't have different opinions, but it's certainly possible to have a different opinion and still remain civil and part of a, you know, a, a proper little society. Yeah, I would say, you know, looking at hyperscale and the quality of postings, I, I would challenge, you know, anyone to find a better place in terms of asking a question related to not only avi- aviation modeling but aviation itself. It's really a place that has become my de facto location to find information. And if I need to ask a question, I'm confident that the right person has that little tidbit of knowledge. And then it just spirals out of control in some of these posts about, you know, everybody, you know, throwing their little bit in and and it's incredibly valuable a lot of times. Gold dust in there. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say it's, it's also so much, I'll say it's a lot better now too, in a sense of, the actual format of the forums, it, you know, going from Network 54 to Tapatalk, I think helped out a lot in terms of usability. Yeah, I, I think it did too. Although there, at the time it was very much a 50-50, I love it, I hate it divide yes. for a while. Yes, like a band-aid. Yeah, most people have either got used to it or gone away. My concern mm. is that that 50% would go away, but they haven't. So, mm-hmm. But yes, I, I think it's far and away better in terms of features and usability than than network 54 ever was not to mention reliability yeah please don't mention reliability yeah. <laughs> and, and support was like shouting into a into a, into the grand canyon you know you <laughs> you, you might you, you might get a, a, a voice back but it's nothing that's going to actually help you whereas tapper talk fantastic they've got a, a person who's pretty much dedicated to us chris w if you're listening fantastic work there if i send chris who's in North America, a message at three o'clock in the morning, her time, she's onto it straight away. I, I don't know when she ever sleeps. That sounds like Scott here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. Yeah. I love going to the forum. And in Tapadoc too, I find the search feature a lot more, just easier to use. And, and it works. Yeah. Yeah, that helps. Yeah, and it works. That's, I guess that's what I was getting at. So, so, so running hyperscale, and creating Hyperscale first and then running it, what are you most proud of? Gee, that's that's a hard question to answer. I think I'm most proud of the forum because I think it it represents the community better than anything else. And it's grown. And, and we have 20 years of history there. If you want to know anything that was said on 9-11, then you can go back to that date and it will make you cry. Uh, even even as, as long ago as that, when Hyperscale was only a couple of years old, the community and the friendship and the support was just unbelievable at the beginning of our, at the dawn of our modern era, I guess, really. And, and it was, that was, that was the beginning of a new world back uh, on that day. So I think the forum is probably the thing that I'm most uh, proud of. I tell you, I still get excited whenever I see any of my work in print. It doesn't matter the fact that I'm uh, editing three magazines and written 30 books. 
as soon as I see something in print of mine, I think, oh, that's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that might just be me. <laughs> no, no, it's definitely me too. Yeah. So talk a, bit, a little bit about uh, Missing Links when you took over that and, and tell us a little bit about it. Yes. Well, Missing Links was uh, started by a, a, a Canadian uh, chap who ran it for a few years and then um, Osprey Publishing bought it from him. And then a few years after that, uh, Osprey Publishing decided that websites were not really their business, which I think was probably a, not the best decision they could have made at the time. <laughs> but they they advertised public, publicly for somebody to buy missing links from them. And I contacted them and I said, look, I was already working for them as a as an author. Uh, and I said, look, I, I'm not going to pay money for it, but I'll give you free advertising for two years on hyperscale and on, on missing links if you pass it over to myself. And so they agreed to that. I took on missing links and I basically have tried to change it as, as little as possible. So whereas with hyperscale, I'd say it's a pretty much a 50-50 split between the, the webzine and the forums. With missing links, it was always very much, I'd say at least 80% forums. And with some of the, you know, the, the best recognized names in the military modeling world. So we've got, you know, the Tom Cockles and the Steve Zalagas and, you know, a, a bunch of uh, really, really well qualified people who moderate these forums. So I stay as hands off as possible on missing links and it pretty much takes care of itself. The number of visitors is slightly smaller than hyperscale. The numbers of posts are slightly smaller than hyperscale, but it's it's a really identifiable independent community, and it's 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 as strong as hyperscale forums, at least I would say. Yeah, we we recently did an interview with Rick Lawler, and he was telling us the story of when he created his amazing piece, "The Burden of Sorrow." That uh, where that debut uh, was on missing links, and he talked about the reaction to it and how how many messages he received. You know that was uh, that was pretty a pretty fun story to hear. Yeah. Well, we talk about the two different pages of hyperscale missing links. I don't know a lot of modelers that don't have those bookmarked on their computers. As a matter of fact, I was I went so far as there was a time when I had I was the only person to access a certain computer. Hyperscale was my homepage. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I would go there, just turn on the computer, the, the internet, and there it was. <laughs> when I had time, when I had time to look at the statistics in more detail, I would often look at the daily stats, and you could see the uh, the American continent waking up. <laughs> country as people got their cup, cup of coffee and opened up hyperscale. <laughs> so. Yeah, very much, very much um, a phenomenon. Oh, it was you know just adding to that. It was always a topic. So. My dad was a, you know, a long time hyperscaler and, and it was like, it, it, it drove his day waking up, seeing what was on hyperscale. And then I just remember we'd talk about it and we'd talk about with other modelers. It would always be a conversation piece at local club meetings. And it's like, Hey, did you see what was on hyperscale today? Oh, what did they post last week? So I just want to relay that the, the site that you've created and maintained and grown has really touched, I would say, nearly every you know modeler in the United States in some way, shape, or form. And it's just been a powerful tool. And the conversations that you're creating with people is is, is just it's it's fantastic for the hobby. Well, thank you very much, John. It's very kind of you to say so. Yeah, I would echo that. My dad, my dad, and I still 
uh, to this day talk about uh, what was on hyperscale and, you know, a build that might be on there or a thread that was interesting. It was a common thread for us as well. It crosses, to, crosses generations, certainly. Yeah, that's great. Great to hear that it crosses generations. But I guess, you know, 22, 23 years, it, it's going to happen. <laughs> Maybe three generations I, now. I hope so. well well, brett before we move on i'm just kind of curious about something i mean obviously you've got eleven thousand followers on on facebook i'm curious as to how how the visitors to hyperscale and missing links kind of cross over with your facebook visitors and and now as of late your youtube uh, visitors as well i mean you have kind of a feel for how that works Uh, yes i guess to a certain extent, the Facebook Hyperscale and Missing Links page is a promotional tool as far as I'm concerned. So it's not so much an ends to a mean. It's more a way to direct traffic to you know the, the particular article that I might have written in the magazine or that, uh, that might be uh, in a gallery on Hyperscale or, or so forth. So really, I think there's so much on Facebook at the moment that I'm not trying to compete with what's on there. Uh, really, I'm, I'm just using it to kind of corral the uh, the interest and and direct it to you know whatever the magazine or the or the website the the subject might happen to be in uh, YouTube is is kind of a you, I've got to have YouTube in order to post the embedded videos on Hyperscale. If I post a video on YouTube and I don't post it to the the What's New page on Hyperscale, I, I'll get a hundred a couple of hundred or maybe a thousand views. Um, if I post it on on Hyperscale's What's New page is an embedded video, then I'll get 10,000, 12,000. So it's it's a, a bit of a sanity test uh, on the YouTube side of things as to what people are looking at. And it seems to me that more people are going to look at it on the What's New page than they are on YouTube. And once again, there's so much competition on, on YouTube that it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to, to compete with some of these guys who do nothing but build uh, videos or, or that sort of thing. I, I can't do that. So I, I stick to my knitting, basically. I stick to the stuff that, that I know that I can do best. Well, since we're we're talking about that, when you when Brett Green is on YouTube, what is he consuming? What do you look at? Who do you who do you like to follow? Uh I honestly it's a time factor. It's not that I don't want to, but I just don't watch a lot of modeling videos. I, I tend to get uh, get stuck on Saturday night, Saturday night Live uh, clips. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <that's> the truth. <laughs> and the problem is the more I watch, the more more suggestions they put up for me to, to watch. <laughs> so um, I, I just I don't get much of a chance to actually look at the, the build videos, no. All right, we'll move on. We, you're also a publisher. So we're, we're curious. You've got – you're the editor of Milita- Model Military International. What, tell us about that. Yeah, it, it was an interesting story. So I, I should clarify, I, I just work for the publisher. <laughs> so um, I've, I've contracted to do the magazines. Doolittle Media is the publisher in the UK. It was ADH Publishing before that. But basically, ADH Publishing were an advertiser on Hyperscale. I knew the publisher not well, but I'd, I'd corresponded with him previously on, on a number of occasions. And I heard from a third party that the editor of Model Military International was going to be leaving the job. So I thought, okay, I know it might be a little bit of a, a sort of a topsy-turvy way of doing it, but it'd be interesting to move into print from multimedia. And I thought I could probably do it. I, I thought, 
you know, I've, I've got your typical white man's overconfidence. So just because I'd never done a job didn't mean that I, I didn't think I could do it. So I, uh, I contacted the, uh, the publisher and I said, look, if, uh, if anything ever comes up as far as an editor's job on any of your magazines, I'd be very interested to, to have a go, which was kind of, I was expecting then he was going to say, oh, well, as a matter of fact, but he, he didn't know at that stage that the editor was leaving. So I got a phone call the next week from Alan to say, oh, guess what? We've got a job. <laughs> and he said, we've never had somebody working 10,000 miles from the office before, but we'll, we'll give it a try. We'll see how you go for a few uh, issues and, uh, and we'll let you know. Uh, I'm still doing it after uh, about 11 years, so I assume that I passed the trial. <laughs> so, Brett, you're doing not only the Model Military International, but also, which is the military version. Uh, there's two of them, essentially. Yeah, Military Illustrator Modeler. Yeah, yeah. Military Illustrator Modeler. What happened was there was a, there was an, a magazine called Military Illustrated. And it was one of these kind of old-fashioned 1970s style magazines that had uh, yeah, Napoleonic um, pencil drawings and, and stories of the Civil War and, and all this sort of stuff. And it, it wasn't selling. It just wasn't selling anymore. So the, the publisher wanted to maintain the space on the newsagent stand. And apparently this is a very important thing. So they wanted to have it as something that was had a direct connection to Military Illustrated. Therefore, they called it Military Illustrated Modeler. When I was talking to Alan and, and Marcus about it, I was saying, why did you call it Hyperscale Magazine and Missing Links Magazine? And, and we leveraged the, off the brand identification. And they said, yeah, but, you know, we want it to be on the shelves. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was your Military Illustrated Modeler was born. Marcus does the military version and I do the aircraft version. Yeah. And those are published every other month. They are, yes, that's right. And then the Model Military International, that is published every month. That's correct, yes, that's right. And it's Sister Airplane Magazine as well. That's right. During COVID, basically, Spencer was on furlough. And I understand in the UK that if you're on furlough, you can't actually be doing your job. The government pays you, but you can't do your job. So I, I took over during the furlough period, and Spence decided he quite liked that. <laughs> <laughs> a change in role. He's now actually providing articles for Marcus and myself in Tamiya Mag and uh, and also MAI, and it's worked out fantastically well. We, we were just in touch the other awesome. night uh, again. He was interested in doing the the kinetic uh, Pucara, the twenty yes. Argentine aircraft, and I thought, oh, well, that's yep. great. Okay, how about I'll do the the Harrier GR three. And we'll do a, a Falklands War special Falklands, yeah. with those two in the same issue. And it's really, really good to have someone like Spence to be able to, to sort of bounce around those those ideas and, and to come up with this thing and, and have you know, reliably good models, fantastic models really, and reliably mm -hmm. good articles that I don't have to do very much to <laughs> to get them to Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so those magazines are are traditional magazines, but also available electronically as well, are they not? Yeah, that is correct. Yes. What does a typical issue mean for you as an editor? Like, what do you have to do time wise? What do you have to put into those? It's funny, particularly now that I'm doing three magazines. It's it's nowhere. It's nothing like the the very rigid kind of process that I used to do with with just the two. So it tends to be a little more fluid than it used to be. 
my first objective is to try to make sure I'm always ahead on building. So I don't want to be starting layout on a magazine and still have a model to build. So uh, if you see if you see a model in the issue of a magazine, it means I've probably built it a month before. I'm actually trying to get ahead of that as well at the moment, uh, just in case something goes wrong. It's nice to have uh, a, a bit of extra content up your sleeve. So the building is one aspect of it. The the cultivating and communication with contributors is another part of it. So I want to make sure that our contributors are happy. I want to make sure that our contributors are, are building the, the sort of thing they want to build. I want to make sure they understand what makes a good magazine article and make it as easy as possible for them to, to deliver that because that that's all an essential part of, of providing a, a high-quality magazine for our readers. So, yeah, certainly uh, that, that sort of contributor uh, side of things is, is very important. And then the actual production, there's a bit of time spent on preparing a magazine issue for layout. So I want to get it into a, into a condition where uh, my layout genius, Alex, can easily understand what I want to see in print. And we've been working together for so long now, about 12 years, that he, he is very intuitive about what, what I want to see. And, and I'm quite intuitive, I think, about what he's going to deliver. So it's a, it's a fantastic relationship. If you can work with an artist like that uh, over such a long period of time, it, it becomes like a marriage to, to a certain extent. Yeah, sorry, Debbie. Yeah, so preparing for layout is another part. Once it, once it goes to Alex, then obviously he uh, lays it out in, uh, in design, in Adobe InDesign, and then it comes back to me. I've got to check the magazine, make sure that I haven't missed any typos, hadn't made any great factual mistakes make sure that everything looks sensible on the page. Uh, then it goes back to Alex again. He prepares it for a PDF. It goes off to the printer and comes back in a little envelope about a month later. So I'd like to, Brad, if it's okay, I'd like to focus on one thing you mentioned there and specifically about contributors. To just be blunt, is your are you always accepting contributors? Um, you know, if, if someone wanted to share their work and, you know, kind of get your feedback about, would it be able to be published? Could, could they do that? Yes, indeed. Always encourage uh, new contributors for sure. Absolutely, yeah. They might not always necessarily make the cut, but they will always hear back from me. And uh, if there's something that is stopping their work from appearing in the magazine, and it might be something as simple as photographic quality, actually lighting is probably the biggest problem that we have with magazine articles. Some brilliant models, beautiful models, you know, really well-written articles and you know, it just drives Alex nuts because he can't do anything about the uh, you know, the fundamentals of, of lighting and exposure or you know, depth of field or you know, basic phot- photographic stuff. Yeah, so you, you, you kind of led right into my next question. In addition to maybe some photography tips, if, if there was someone looking to submit an article, if you could give them maybe your, your top three tips on you know, what, makes a, what makes a successful article to be published, if you could just share that, that'd be awesome. Let me sort of break it down into top three tips for photography. Okay. I would say the top three tips for photography are lighting, lighting, and lighting. (laughs) (laughs) That's important because if you've got a, you want to have a well-lit subject, you want to have a subject that doesn't have a lot of shadows and directions. So what you want is a couple of lights. They don't have to be big lights these days. You can buy some pretty good lights on on eBay for relatively inexpensive. My Bowen's lights cost me thousands of dollars 20 years ago. 
but now you can buy something equivalent for a couple of hundred bucks. So what you want is to have you know, 45 degree downward lighting with preferably some sort of a soft uh, diffusing box or, uh, or, or cloth. You can usually, you can buy those as well as, as soft boxes and, and just have the lighting so that it, there's, it's not harsh, that you don't have shadows, but it's nice and bright because the brighter it is, it also means the larger the aperture you can use and the smaller the depth of field will be. Sorry, the, the greater the depth of field will be. So, yeah, photography is probably the biggest thing. Even with writing, uh, even with writing in another language, we can get around that. We can go back to basics. You, you can't remake a photograph, uh, as even as, as good as you might be with Photoshop. If it's a bad photo, it's a bad photo. So that, that's my first, my first tip, I would say. Secondly, as far as a good magazine article is concerned, there's a standard format that I like to use. It was a format before I came on board, so I'm not taking credit for it. But I like the idea of the, the model spec that gives you a, a summary of all of the accessories and tools and paints that you use as a summary so that if somebody looks at the, the model on the front page, they say, oh, how did they do that? They can go straight to a, a one-column summary of exactly what materials went into it and they can just use it as a checklist. To, to buy themselves. So I think that's important as well. The other thing that I think is often underestimated in the importance of any magazine article in particular, and that is captions. So some people seem to think that captions are either not necessary or, you know, it's a three-word description. But I believe that people who read a magazine fall into three categories. The first category is somebody who likes the magazine cover who looks at the pictures, and that's it. That's all they need. That's fine. Uh, so it, I think it's important to have quite a lot of photos and to have the photos themselves create a logical narrative that people will get something out of, even if they don't read a word of text in the article. The second sort of person is a bit like that person, but they're also going to read the captions, and that's going to give them a level of detail that they didn't have by just looking at the pictures. So it's really, really important. To, to have logical and, and descriptive captions, I think, on a magazine article as well. And the third category is the guy who devours the magazine, <laughs> who will take it into the bathroom with them for the first uh, week. <laughs> no, you know, that, that's great feedback. And it, it's funny you mention the model spec and captions because I actually, before I sent you that article last night for the T3485, I was like, I, I remember – you know, writing for Brett, I always like to include this for him. So I went through all my captions, looked at what paints I used, categorized them for acrylics, enamels. And, and I'm really happy to hear you say that because it's like, okay, time well spent. It really is. It, it's possibly the most useful thing about an article for a lot of modelers because what a lot of modelers, what I used to do, I used to go to Chris's shop in the mid-1990s. Chris and myself and a couple of other friends would always come into the shop when we knew that Tamiya Model Magazine was out. And we would, we would go through the pages of the magazine and all we wanted to do was to copy what Marcus and Angus and, and the <laughs> other guys did in that magazine every month. You know, they, they had a, a wonderful sort of a, a group of, of regular contributors. And that, that's the other thing that I quite like as well. If, if I can have, MIM has got this to a certain extent, a bit of an ensemble cast of contributors. I mm -hmm. think that's also something that will bring people back. Yeah, you hit on something very important there. When I write articles, 
I, and, you know, captions, I always try to write one to two sentences, trying to explain what's going on in the photo instead of this was painted in acrylics. <laughs> I've kind of lamented on the show before, you know, sometimes with magazine articles, there, there's things glossed over. And, and you bring up a very important point about listing explicitly what paints you use, because as a reader, that's what I want to consume. You know, Scott, he's always asking, well, what exactly did you do? And and I kind of take those and put them towards a magazine article. And, it, and it's great to hear that, you know, again, that's that's what readers want. That's and that's what you want as a publisher or as an editor going, you know, expanding on the article and, and to help possibly a new modeler get into publishing. When you think about photography, I've seen benchtop photos and I've seen, you know, kind of the professional white background photos. Are benchtop photos OK for in-progress shots or do you have a preference? How does that work? I always prefer, I cringe whenever I see a, a like a, a green cutting mat. I really do. Good to know. I much prefer much prefer a white background. It, okay. It's for a pragmatic reason. It drives me slightly nuts doing it because now I've I've actually moved my office work my my building space into a different part mm-hmm. of the house to where I take my mm-hmm. photos. So I'm always traipsing back and forwards through two doors mm-hmm. from the the model table to the photography table. But I'll still do mm-hmm. it every time because it's it's a it's a better result. The purely mm-hmm. pragmatic reason as an editor that I prefer white background photos is that it means that we can flow text around the uh, the the image. So if we've got a green mat as a background, it means that we're pretty much stuck with having to have a rectangular or a four sided image, and it, it limits the creative input that Alex, my layout person, can put into it. Mm-hmm. So the the advantage of a white background is you can do anything with it. You can you can just cut and paste and and flow mm-hmm. text around and flow them into each other and all that sort of stuff. So it, it it's it's just it's better for the way it looks. It's better for the way we can tell the story. Now, going on uh, or continuing the background theme, I sent you some photographs last night of the finished model with a two-tone background, you know, going from white to black. How do you like that as an editor or and even your designer? Because if you don't like it, I won't do it. <laughs> I'm just curious if, if that is okay. I think they look really good on online. I think that kind of grade, yeah. gradated thing. But what you'll find yeah. is that when you see the pictures that you're giving me with the graded background in the magazine, you will find that yeah. uh, Alex will have um, photoshopped out the gray bit. <laughs> So it, it'll oh, be like, that's good to know. It's not a particular problem, though, unless it's a sailing ship, in which case uh, I'll be cursed from England. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking over at my photo booth. I'm going to rip the two tone off and go shoot all my T34 <laughs> pictures. <laughs> I think everything everything has its place. I think there are there are there are certain things that look good on online, and there are certain things that work better in print. Yeah. And yeah, those graded uh, pictures online as a as a big kind of a full screen image mm-hmm. look fantastic. They really do. Uh, it, it's interesting as well. I find that I've got a lot of my models on the cover, and it's not necessarily because I'm built. I built the best model in the magazine, but it's because I, it's it's hard to actually take a cover photograph, <laughs> and it's hard to describe mm-hmm. how to do it. It's something that you want is going. It's going to. It's not necessarily going to be a. It's going to be a weird angle, perhaps. It's something you wouldn't have normally considered. It's something that that you want to leap off the newsstand and, and really grab your attention. Never worry about having too many photos of a finished model. 
even if I only use three or four, which is probably the case, I don't mind getting 20 and I don't mind getting them in weird angles uh, because it might be some one of those weird angles that says, wow, that's going on the cover. I really like that. It's funny you mentioned the weird angles and uh, you know Sam Dwyer yeah. uh, probably. He, you know, he was the one that kind of taught me that where give it a tilt or, you know, you know, orient the model this way and they create dramatic poses. And then as you mentioned, it's those dramatic poses that really jump the model out to a reader and work really well for that portrait style layout you're going for. Um, so I'm always trying to hypothesize like, okay, like, you know, how can I angle this or tilt it and, you know, photograph, you know, maybe a low dramatic angle. That, those are the things that I'm constantly thinking about. And it's, it's, re, it's reaffirming to hear as an editor, those are things you're looking for. That's, that's great. To Marcus Nichols is the master of the cover photo. <laughs> he is, mm-hmm. and the covers were one of those things that we used to uh, yeah, gather and, and ooh and ah at in uh, Chris's mm-hmm. back in the olden days. Mm-hmm. But he's been doing that since the 90s. Marcus actually has a degree in photography. So, mm. And you can tell, you know, the, that, that sort of professional and very creative approach that he takes to uh, anything that's on the cover, and in particular, his own models uh, on the cover. F- funny story about Marcus, you know, he taught me some of that for the Brumbar I built for him. He's like, okay, you know, if, if you got to make sure you take it at this angle. And we went through stepping through some photographs. He's, you know, maybe oriented this way. So I really appreciate that coaching, but it gets back to exactly what you said creating those dramatic poses to, to grab the reader, pull them in, make them want to open that cover and read more about that model. Yeah, and I'll do that as well. If, if there's a, a model, a particular model I want on the cover and they don't be mm-hmm. one that, that I think, eh, well, it doesn't really grab me, then yes, I can go mm-hmm. back to the, the modeler and say, can you take another couple of shots from a high front three-quarter or a, a low mm-hmm. uh, left-hand three-quarter or you know, mm-hmm. a profile or whatever else. Brad, thanks again for talking about your magazines. Are there any books you're currently writing for Scale Model? No, unfortunately, until they've worked out a way to put about another 10 hours in the day, I think I'm at, <laughs> at capacity at the moment. I do miss writing books, and there are probably some that I could do or that I would have been able to do in the How to Build series for, uh, for Doolittle, like the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Spitfire and the Corsair and the, you know, the other – bits and pieces that I've done the Mustang, here. Yeah. Osprey, sort of, they decided not to do modelling books anymore, which I thought was a great shame. I've registered a, a company name and a, a web address for a publishing company, uh, like a self-publishing company. So when the time is right, when I've got more time, I will go back to that and I've got a, a number of, like they'll probably be how to build model type books. One of the things that I was very disappointed about with uh, Osprey is that I got to write how to build the 109 in 48 scale uh, parts one and two, but I never got to part three, which would have actually covered the the variations that, that I like the most. So the G10, the AS, G14AS, you know, the uh, the K4 and so forth. So the first self-publishing thing that I that I will work on, if it ever comes to that, will be part three. It'll be those late war 109s. And I'll probably do a, a post-war 109 as well. There's some really interesting stuff there. I'd love to see you give the same level of care and attention in one of those books to some armor pieces as you do to some of those aircraft series that you've done in the past. No, thank you. That, that would be interesting. I, it's funny though, with aircraft, I, I can sort of accept that 
there are techniques that I use that I can repeat that, that they're going to be a certain standard of modeling. Whenever I open the box of an armor kit, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, is this going to turn out all right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and every time I paint a, a, an armor model, it seems I'm doing something different. So in some ways that's good, but, but particularly on weathering, it, it just, it just changes every time. <laughs> So all I, all I do is I build it, I write about it, and then I, I move on to the next one. <laughs> nice. So talking about, you know, maybe books in the future, any other big plans for 2021? Uh, no, really, just uh, keep on working. I think that's that's the objective. Maybe have a day off at some stage would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get a lot of No, I can understand it. You know, with the pandemic, of course, you know, traveling is very limited, but do you see yourself coming over to the United States at some point, maybe going to another nationals? I'd love to. I would love to. It's been so long since I've been to a Nats and it's such fun to actually meet up with people face to face. It was mm-hmm. great to see you, John, at uh, Hamilton there a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, what a great That's that right. was, eh? That was fantastic. A, I've got the Canadian yeah. A in there already. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would love to get back to a Nats. They are so much fun. And just another, I'd love to have any of you guys been to one of the, um, the the meet the meet the hyperscale visitor sessions that we've had at the Nats in the past. Ah, uh, boy, they're fun. They're really good. Yeah, Dana Bell and uh, is always oh, yeah. is always there, sort of uh, yeah, keeping me on my toes. <laughs> yeah, fantastic modeler and really unbelievable researcher. Yeah, and, and great guy. What a wonderful guy. Yeah, super nice. I, you know, I was going to mention Scott and Doug on the line here have never been to an IPMS. No, really? Not once. Well, be prepared to have an ice cream headache. Let me tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're all all going. We've all got our reservations for Vegas in August. And uh, the guys in Nevada keep telling us it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So we're Fingers, fingers crossed. And I'm sure it'll be what happens in Vegas goes straight onto the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right on a hyperscale. <laughs> oh, no. That, yeah, so I'm, I'm super stoked to be their chaperone. Oh, well, very you know, good. <laughs> in better times, maybe you could have joined us, but, you know, maybe maybe over the next couple of years. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we'll, we'll all have a jab in the next few months and uh, things will start to get a little bit more normal. For sure. So maybe, Brett, this time we're going to transition the conversation a little bit, you know, from publishing, maybe back to yourself. And, you know, we have a couple almost standard questions we love to hear from modelers. And it, and it kind of gets us in the frame set of how they approach the hobby and, and what inspires them. And, and with that, you know, the, the first question, there's always a debate around is modeling art. You know, maybe if you could just take a few minutes and, and tell us what your thoughts around it are, are about it. And maybe do you consider yourself an artist or, or how do you feel? Generally, I think the answer is no. I think it's, I think we are, we are craftsmen rather than artists. I think there are some exceptions. I think you can look at, at certain modelers, look at Mike Rinaldi, look at Chris Walker, and, and you can say that what they are doing is, is, is very artistic. And I know with Chris, he, his technique is basically to look at something and and make his model look like the real thing, and and I think that that's probably a definition of art. It, it's not a combination of techniques. He says that he he thinks it's a bit like being an idiot savant. So he he looks at a picture, he he paints and weathers a model, but he doesn't 
ever quite remember all the detail of what he's done. <laughs> so he's, he's working in a trance. The results speak for themselves. But I would say for mere mortals, probably like ourselves, certainly myself, um, I feel like I'm, I'm more involved in, in craft than art. If I'm writing a song, I think that's, that's art. But I've only ever managed to combine those two things once. So, and uh, it never really went public. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great question, and, and it's certainly one that there's there's certainly no right answer, and and everybody, and it's it's really interesting. You bring up the craftsman piece. I think that's one thing that we really haven't hit on, it, and it's great to understand that perspective. You know, Brett, transitioning a little bit. Recently, we spoke to Spencer Pollard, fantastic modeler, as you know, pro- close friend of yours. One of the things he he was really great to talk with about is modeling efficiencies and how he approaches builds. You're in a very similar situation with deadlines and, and really just a, I feel like you have a production line over there. Can you talk about maybe the, the steps that you take to make your builds more efficient and, and getting through things quick, I guess? Yeah, I, I generally try to not start a new kit until I finish the one that I'm working on. There are exceptions to that rule. That that little whisper is one of them. I've finished it in 2018 and, and put it to one side. But ultimately, I can't afford not to finish a model, which means also the other rule is uh, don't sweat the small stuff. So if I'm not happy with it, then tough luck, really. It's going to get published. And to a certain extent, it's more interesting to write and photograph about things that have gone wrong rather than things that have gone right. Now, I'm, I'm not going to complain about uh, writing about a Tamiya kit. Equally, I think it can be just as interesting, if not more so, if I were to pick up a 20-year-old you know, classic airframes kit and, and talk about the challenges and the, the problems and the issues that, that, I might have, that I might have seen in that build. I, I know a lot of people complain about, oh, this kit didn't go together, the fit wasn't very good or the alignment wasn't very good or the dihedral was wrong or you know, whatever else. But we are modelers. I mean, this is what we – it really, if we don't address those issues, we're not even craftsmen. We're, we're assemblers. So I think depending on what your definition of the hobby is, yeah, I think, uh, I think yeah, we, we, you just you suck it up and, and you, you, uh, you fix it, basically. And if you don't want to fix it, that's fine as well. Um, that's not a problem either. But it, it, gives, it gives you something to write Since about. Since you bring that up, what are the parts of the build that you really – love the best. I know some guys love the research. Some guys love the paint and finish work. Some guys really love to scratch build and super detail. What's what's Brett's favorite part of a build, generally speaking? I think there's probably two things that I, I like the most. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying cockpits lately. And it's partly due to the fact that we have so many wonderful options that we can apply in the cockpits now with instrument panels and uh, harness straps and and so forth. Now I'm quite happy to enter a, a debate as to whether those things are killing the hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got some of those Mike Grant smoke rings. I tell you, I'm going to use them one day. <laughs> but I, I for one, I, I'm very pleased to have them around because they look fantastic and they speed up a build too. So uh, from my point of view, that's a good thing. But painting, I really enjoy painting airplanes. Painting aircraft is is one of my favorite things. You used an Aztec airbrush for a long, long time. Are you still using that or have you moved to a different brush? No, it's died, unfortunately. It, it lasted a very, very long time. And you know, with a lifetime guarantee, they, they would give you 
it's essentially a replacement. They'd replace it if, if it was broken. It's like the 40-year-old hammer that's had 20 heads and 15 handles. It, it, had, it had the lifetime guarantee, but it didn't have very much in common with the very first one that I had. They changed the policy after a while, and uh, when it meant that I had to actually buy the bits to replace them, I, I decided to buy an Awata HPC Plus airbrush instead, and that's, that's mainly what I'm using at the moment. In fact, I, I've, I've got two of them. Because I use them a lot, I, I try to keep them clean as much as possible, but they eventually lose their edge, uh, even with new needles and new uh, nozzles. So I, I've got sort of a, a rotating thing happening where after about two years, I'll buy a new one, and that's used for the fine work, and the old one's used for the broad work. Yeah, the the HPC, I was just looking. That's that's my staple brush, absolute workhorse. I love it. Yeah, they, they're great. They're really they are good. My first airbrush was the HPC, no C+. It was just HPC. It's 30 years ago when I got that one. Classic. And that, Classic. that was an excellent brush. Yeah. So, Brett, I, it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Scott, about airbrushing. Brett, now correct me if I'm wrong. Do you paint with your thumb? Uh, I paint with my thumb. Yes, that's what I thought. Okay, that I don't know if Scott or Doug have seen that before, but very interesting way to hold an airbrush. I think some some people have suggested that it looks more like I'm stabbing something, <laughs> an airbrush. But when I bought my first airbrush, I didn't know any other modelers. The internet didn't exist, and uh, I just thought, well, I'll use it the way it seems natural, and the, the way it seemed natural to me was the thumb. So and it, it worked. It's fine. I I've tried. Yeah, I really have, honestly. But it just feels weird to me. No, that's that's really interesting. And I know it's it's me versus about twenty million models out there. But, yeah. <laughs> hey, whatever you're doing works. So yeah. keep 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 going. I, I say. said un, unjustified confidence. I'm I'm full of it. <laughs> Rock stars of the hobby. Brett Green's thumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Brad, it certainly does work. The amount of control you have, I, I, maybe since we're on the air, topic of airbrushing, a technique that I think you excel at is shading, and specifically, you know, panel lines. And and can you talk maybe about, you know, that we'll use an example, late lower Luftwaffe, the, the subtle shading you do, maybe talk about the paint mix and, and just how do you achieve that effect? Because I am enamored by it. Oh, thank you very much. It's it's layers. It's layers. So once you put the, the base color down, say 75 gray violet on a Luftwaffe wing, then what I do is I will empty the cup. I'll fill it half with with thinners. Uh, I usually just use uh, alcohol like that. Uh, handy if you need a, a little drink as well. <laughs> so, uh, and then I'll, I'll put a thin mix, but still a, a reasonable amount of paint with uh, about half 75 and about half 76 light blue. So this is going to be a thin mix, and then I'll be spraying it in very, very small streaks, spots, some mottles. I'll, I'll do a little bit of uh, streaking on the, the leading edge to indicate um, airflow. This is all in the slightly paler shade of, of RLM 75. Then I'll, I'll spray the 74 uh, grey violet. I'll repeat that that stage having a lighter shade of, of 74 uh, while the, the masks, if I've got masks while they're still on. Once that's done, then comes the actual panel line shading. And what I will do there is I will certainly have a very thin mix, a few spots of XF64 red-brown, a couple of spots of XF1 uh, flat black, and I will 
have that really in a half a, a cup of thinners. So it's very, very thin, almost, almost pure thinners. And I'll run a few thin coats along the control surfaces. So certainly the, the hinge lines for the rudder, ailerons, elevators. And then I will do the same for some, but not necessarily all of the panel lines. And I'll also use the same mix to do a few spots and streaks, in particular at the wing root. So I might have uh, some, some streaks, vertical and horizontal, around the wing root so that it looks generally darker and more weathered in that area. So it's, it's, it's layers, as I say. And it's, it's those kind of three layers that, that, uh, that I mostly use. I've also lately, occasionally, started using Tamiya's pastel chalks in their weathering sets. So I'll just I'll rub it. I'll rub the the little yeah you know, eyeliner applicator with the mud color on on the surface of the wing, not the whole wing. And then I'll just sort of with my finger I'll rub it around the wing, and that will tend to particularly with Edward. It's a really good technique for Edward kits because the the little recessed rivets get filled with this darker shade, and then it's just sort of wiping off the excess of the pigment from the surface. Very cool. It sounds like you're using mostly Tamiya paints. Uh, what what other kinds of paints do you usually like? And um, are you using any of the new Tamiya lacquers or any of the SMS lacquers? Yeah, I'm, I'm using uh, some of the, the Tamiya lacquers, the ones that I can find. I like the Gunzi uh, Mr. Color lacquers as well. The SMS, yeah, I've just bought some actually. I haven't used them yet, but they look good. They look like they're good to go straight from the bottle. They've got some funny classifications of color names, but um, I think I can work it out. But generally, it's to me, acrylics are great. They spray really well, but you've got to hit them with uh, Future pretty much straight away because they tend to be a bit chalky, easy to damage. The Gunsy acrylics are the opposite. They tend to stay kind of uh, susceptible to fingerprints uh, <laughs> quite a long time after you've painted them. So, yes, either generally it's going to be Future over Tamiya or or some form of lacquer these days. I will try to use spray cans when I can as well, just because I'm lazy and I'm time poor, and also <laughs> because with Tamiya spray cans they spray beautifully. Yeah, your is it AS12, the natural metal? Yeah, yeah, favorite. Yeah. <laughs> that that color every I feel like I've bought all the bottles I've bought are because of your or Spencer's builds. I mean, oh, what what you, what you can do with with that rattle can. <laughs> oh man, it's God's work. I'll tell you what I have found, and that is because we haven't been able to get Tamiya anything. Haven't been able to get Tamiya mm. paints, glues, anything like that. And I went down to um, a hobby shop down south of Wollongong called Model Sports, and they didn't have the the silver that I wanted, but they had these AK yeah. Extreme Metal. Wow, Not they're now. great. <laughs> they're really great. <laughs> Uh, I, can, I can thoroughly recommend them. Uh, I paid full retail price, so there's no uh, there's no ulterior motive. But they've got four or five different colours in the um, in the range, and uh, unlike Alclad, which can be a little bit temperamental when you're masking over them, these yep. are fantastic, just uh, absolutely brilliant. So um, I'm looking forward to actually building a natural metal aircraft. I'll still use the AS12. You know, it doesn't have any reason to be jealous. I'll still be using <laughs> as my as my base colour. But I'll, I'll use these like aluminium and dark aluminium colors or aluminum to, um, to use as my, my moderating shades. Oh, that's, that's good to know. So you spoke about future projects, you know, 
what uh, what's in store? For, what's on your bench, in fact? Well, my, my bench is is bursting at the moment. It's uh, quite amazing, really, uh, how many great new kits there are out. I'm very tempted to build the Infinity 30 Seconds called Dauntless, mm. but the photo etch parts aren't ready yet, so I, I might wait for that one. Also, the Clear Prop Sky Shark. Wow, what a nice kit that is. I, I would like to build that soon. I mentioned before the little special that uh, Spencer and I are going to be working on with the Picara, so I'll be building the Harrier GR3. I bought a replacement seat, resin seat, and some hard, you know, heavy iron bombs for the Falklands campaign. Uh, what else? There's just too much. <laughs> there really is too much. <laughs> uh, but what, I think what I'll probably build, because I've got it before the rest of the world, is the Airfix um, Beaufort, Bristol Beaufort in 70 seconds scale. And nice. I have on my way to me, uh, as of Tuesday, I think, a Mark 8 conversion. So the Mark 8 Beaufort was an Australian-built one. We, we built them entirely here. But we had different engine, different tail, different nose. It had a whole stack of different aspects to the British ones. So it's quite a different-looking um, thing. Interesting in overall foliage green as well. So I think that's probably going to be the next one that I build. And after that will be the Harrier. And after that, I think, will probably be the Sky Shark. Nice. How about Tamiya's new F4 Phantom? Is that in your future? Oh, don't talk to me about that. <laughs> it, my, heart, my heart breaks every time I think about that. I used to get um, samples from uh, Shizuoka, but the reality of COVID means – that Japan does not ship to Australia anymore, so oh, uh, no. I can't get I can't get it. Um, Spencer is actually I hope I'm not spoiling a secret. Sorry, Spence. Uh, <laughs> Spencer <laughs> is actually built because they, they are receiving samples in in the UK. But I can assure you, even if I have to wait until it's released, I'll be building it as soon as possible. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of aircraft. I'm the armor modeler in the group, so I got to ask, what what are what about armor subjects? On the bench, uh, I have a Zvezda T3485. Great, okay. great mind sink alike. But this one has a conversion, I can't remember the name of the company, to a, to a like an improvised um, ARV. So oh, okay. it's got a whole bunch Is of... Is it the... Is it Panzer Art? Is it Panzer Art or is it not? It might be Panzer Art or Death Model. I'm not sure. No, it's not on the I think it might be Panzer Art actually. Okay. But it, okay. it's got a hatch where the turret ring is. Oh, nice. Okay. A, a whole bunch of stowage and, you know, all the sorts of things. Oh, ARV. yes, it is Panzer Art. Yep. Uh, so that's nice. really interesting. I, I love painting up stowage. I also have a, a figure, a commander figure for that who can just sort of sit perched in the um, in the little, uh, little hatch. So that's Probably my next my next one. That's actually one of the reasons I brought your T thirty five T thirty four eighty five forward one issue because I think my T thirty four is going to be in that issue. <laughs> oh, so nice. We'll, we'll put yours in there first, and then we'll uh, we'll go with my next issue. Well, I appreciate it yep. certainly a lot, Brad. And you know, I, I'm throwing down the gauntlet to my co-hosts here. I want them to submit an article to oh, you. Yeah. I think you know we're you know Scott and Doug are both fantastic modelers. They won't they won't admit to it. And then the gentleman who's missing, TJ as well, is another next level modeler, armor, sci fi, extraordinary. So I'll, I'll push them to get you something. Oh, soon. that's fantastic! Thank you, thank you, jo- John. Since you mentioned sci fi, Brett, haven't seen a lot of science fiction subjects. Anything that you might want to build one of these days? Maybe a machining Krieger kit or something. Yeah. I- some of the Star Wars stuff, I'd, I'd really like to build an X-Wing, 
when I was a teenager, I built – no, it must have been later than that. I built a snow speeder, but I think that movie didn't come out till 1979, so um, I must have been a bit older. Uh, snow speeder. So that was about a one-sixth scale. had a, a big stormtrooper figure on top of the snow speeder. It was great. AMT, I think. So, yeah, a few mm-hmm. of those Star Wars kits would be good. Millennium Falcon, that'd be nice too. I'd, I'd actually replace some of the uh, vents on the back with real Tiger One uh, Tamiyans. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. I need a tip on an Australian subject. One of my favorite aircraft of World War II is the Boomerang. So what is the best kit of the Boomerang? Uh, special hobby is still you, you go with that at the moment. A 48 scale or do they do a larger one? Yeah, 48 scale. Uh, there's a company called Oz Mods who did a 32nd scale vac form and multimedia. A kit, but that's been uh, long out of um, out of production. It had an interesting molding method as well for the photo for the uh, vac form part. It, it was actually sort of molded in reverse. It was punched into the plastic. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but um, it was a funny funny idea. But yes, I I think I've still got one of those stashed away somewhere. Interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. I'll have to have to pick one of those up. Ooh. Speaking of special hobby. Uh, one of the releases uh, that I'm excited about is the Westland Whirlwind in 132nd scale. Are you going to do a build of that kit? Yeah, I, I would like to do that. Yes, it, it goes on the ever-growing pile. <laughs> nice. But uh, it's a nice. great-looking model, a great-looking uh, aircraft, I should say. I've still got the Cooper Details vac form. In fact, I think I might have two, which I'll build one day. Nice. Well, Brett, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of the interview. I, I have to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, it was certainly a really valuable conversation. I'm certainly, our li- I'm certain our listeners are going to love it. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And I hope to see you in person, you know, sometime soon. Yeah, that, that would be great. It'd be great to catch up again with all yeah, of you. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Um, th- like I said at the beginning, a uh, real pleasure. I've been waiting for this uh, a really, really long time. So thanks for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Scott. No, it was great here yeah, too. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Doug. It's it's been fun. I hope uh, I haven't driven too many of your listeners away with uh, rambling on for the last hour and a half. <laughs> oh, it's been great, man. Well, see, you, see you at the show. Yes. There yes. you go. There you Absolutely. go. Welcome back. Hope everyone enjoyed that. And we want to thank Brett for stopping by the show. And, and we really appreciated his recommendations for getting your work published. I missed that interview. I'm very disappointed because when I listened to it, it was fantastic. And then uh, I got called out at the end of the interview to um, submit something to Brett for um, an article for publication. I don't know if I will, but I'm going to tell John that I did to make him <laughs> think that. Brett's expecting it. I mean, John basically <laughs> promised Brett you would do it. And so I think he's got a slot open in one of his, you yeah. know, next magazine. The Crusader is the perfect candidate. I'll consider it. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that is about it for episode 20. As always, we want to thank, thank you so much for listening. Uh, just a reminder, you can leave us feedback about this episode or any other episodes of our show over at our Plastic Posse Facebook page. Or, of course, you can email us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, we also want to thank our supporters. We really appreciate you guys contributing to the show and also the people that have written in with your feedback. We also want to give another quick shout out to our sponsor, Goodman Models, and also to our guest, Will Pattison. 
Zach Grizzle, and Brett Green. Also, a reminder to check out our two group builds, the TIE Fighter group build and the Ryefield Models T-3485 group build. All right, and coming up for episode 21, we'll be back with another awesome Triple P interview, this time with armor modeler OG Adam Wilder. We can't wait to share our chat with him. So until next time, here's looking forward to another episode in two weeks. Take care, guys, and yeehaw! So, Brett, for the interview, you mentioned loving to build stowage. And I have to ask, because I have you here and you're not going anywhere. (laughs) How did you? (laughs) That's true. That's true. You can just walk away. You know, one of the things I love about your new WESP is the stowage. And you say you love painting stowage. If you could describe that stowage in like a Cliff Notes version, maybe the quick steps, how you did it and how you achieved those finishes. I'd I'd love to hear it. With stowage and with figures to a certain extent, I I have a very 1970s approach to it. So I'm probably doing the same as like an early Valinden or pre-Valinden. So I'm I'm basically just picking out the the individual packs in in different colors. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally, the colors that I use... I have them literally right here at my fingertips from this Panzer Aces uh, yeah. set, yeah. which has the the German Tanker 1, Tanker 1, Tanker 2, mm. Field Grey. It's got the Africa Corps. It's got the, the Panzer Black uniform mm-hmm. colour. And a lot of those, as well as the highlight colours, individually they're, they're really good colours to use on the packs. The thing with this technique is you've got to hold your nerve. So you, you paint the packs individual colours, and you think, my God, that is horrific. <laughs> because it's just, it's so, it's so lurid, yeah. you know, it browns in there as well. But it's really, really lurid and horrible. So, and you've just got to think, okay, I'm, I'm pressing on. The next step I will generally take is to dry brush. So, and I'll usually use one or two different colors. So I'll use a, a paler version of a brown and a paler version of a green. And mm. I'll just, I'll just dry brush with, um, this very brush. So okay. it's just it's just soft, square edged brush. I've had it for years. And yeah, I just I just dry brush I don't have to tell you how to dry mm-hmm. brush the uh, on there. Uh, at that point I will apply the magic Roy Sutherland future wash. So I'll I'll get a the paint cup with about um fifty percent water, fifty percent um future floor polish. I'll put a few drops Generally, of one of my favourite Panzer Aces colour, uh, 333, uh, which is um, German tank crew black. And then I'll just brush that that future water paint into the recesses of the the packs. By the way, this is all with the with the packs in place. I will all mm-hmm. usually, usually 80% of the time, I'll have the packs in place while I'm doing the painting. So I'll have the base colour done first. I should have said that earlier. So there, then, then I've got the the wash into the uh, the various crevices. At that stage, I'll leave it. I'll probably do a bit of weathering on the the main color, the main camouflage color. Uh, so I'll ignore the packs for a while. I'll do a uh, a flat coat, and then I'll pick out things like the the various the various straps and bits and pieces in um, a combination of like a, a sand color. I think it's a Vallejo uh, sand if I'm doing it as a rope or a leather color, if I'm doing it as leather. And that's about it, really. 
uh, and metallic bits are last, obviously. So if there are buckles, hardware that are that are silver, I actually usually use oily steel, Vallejo mm-hmm. oily steel for that. And that's obviously the last thing that goes after everything else. But yeah, it's very, it's quite straightforward. It's quite old school. Oh, really. I, I love the result. That's why I had to ask. So I, I appreciate you hanging around for a few extra minutes for it. No, no, my pleasure. Well, that's great. <laughs> 